Mate40 here. I was just watching Stephen J. James. He did a stream on how Claire Core had been banned from YouTube. I'm actually preparing something, a stream uh, similar to this. Um, as well, uh, let it drop here. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to do it. Um, I'm going to do Luke Ford's 12 Rules for Life. Because <laughs> 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 it, yeah, it is. Uh, in all his streams, he's. Uh, for months he's been doing like the uh, Jordan Peterson-esque, uh, Stefan Molyneux-esque um, litany of his, his rules basically, I don't know if he, um, if he considers them such, uh, but where, where is it here? Just while I'm listening to his stream I've got a notepad on my phone and if I, I think I even come up with one I write it down, so like uh, I've got here, um, number one, all of us tend to have an exaggerated sense of our own self-importance. A good way of realistically judging your own importance in a particular profession is how much income you derive from it. Now I've got number two, marginalised movements attract marginalised people. You hear him say that a lot, don't you? Mm -hmm. Beware the dangers of the e-personality. That's another one. Don't say anything that you'll be afraid uh, of seeing printed on the front page of the New York Times. That's another one. Different people have different gifts. Anyway, there's my list. That's a, a stream for the future. Mm -hmm. Different people. Hmm. Well, I think, I think so we can just go through a long list of, well, future content for you, which I think is very, well, something to look forward to. You are getting. Okay, so thank you, Stephen J. James, for inspiring me to try to write down and come to terms with, you know, what are my rules for life? Forty's rules are much better than Jordan Peterson's about petting a cat. <laughs> okay. All right, so I was thinking about what are my rules for life. I am not a guru because I don't tell people what they want to hear, and I strive to place my views in the appropriate context of my relative ignorance, my failings, my lack of credentials, all right? Uh, cheating and lying, unfortunately, have been among my strongest habits. So to the extent that I have told painful truths about myself, this is usually a survival thing I've gotten into when I realized that I couldn't lie my way out of my misery but instead i needed to turn to a more effective tactic which is frequently telling the truth so when i've been pushed up against the wall my first reaction all too often has been to see whether or not i can lie my way out of getting hit and if that doesn't work i'd try telling the truth and if that failed i'd try placating bullying or, or freezing so i got into the habit of cheating in high school and it did not end there so if I could get away with it, I'd just try to charm my way through life, doing as little irksome work as possible. So it's only regular doses of humiliation that snaps me out of this laziness. So if I'm not at my best, right, I tend to react like a beaten dog, like a stray dog. I don't despise myself for my character defects. I did not choose them, right? They began as adaptive tactics to try to avoid getting hit. I was bounced off the walls quite a bit as a kid. But unfortunately, these tactics became maladaptive over time. But as I've walked through life, like you, I've done the best I could with the tools I've had at the time. I'd like to think I have better tools than I did back then. So just as Donald Trump has spent his life staying a step ahead of the sheriff, like I've stayed, spent my life just staying a step ahead of the dog catcher. Okay, we got Colin Liddell. I, I sent you an invite if you have time and inclination, Colin, to uh, stop by. And uh, we've got, got a video version of a Colin Liddell uh, 
monologue short pod, so we'll play that a little later. But I want to hit the, the major themes of uh, being inspired by Stephen J. James. What are my major rules for life? So I start off with the political. Uh, we're all locked in an iron cage together, right? Nobody's coming to save us. There's no higher authority who will bail us out in this world that we can rely on. So to survive, you want to become as strong and as connected as possible. So for the individual, the community, the people, the nation state. Now different people have different gifts. Nobody cares about out groups. The stronger your in-group identity, right? The more strongly you identify as gay or Orthodox Jew or Christian or Muslim or Californian, the more likely you are to have negative feelings about out groups or ties bind and blind. So if I am good friends with Colin Liddell, I'm going to be blind to his flaws. Everybody has a hero system. Most people get the hero system from their community. So if you live in a community that values making money, you'll take on that hero system. If you're part of a community that values uh, working the system to try to extract as much government welfare as possible, you value that. If you're part of a community that values you know, stand-up comedy, you're very likely to value that. Marginalized movements attract marginalized people, right? Successful people don't want to live their life on the margins. What would determine the success of a political administration? Events, my dear boy, events. Every living thing, so from plants to animals to people, from Jews to Muslims to Christians to gays, every living thing strives to create the optimal environment for its thriving and will react viciously to anything that endangers it. You want to preserve native life. You have to restrict invasive species. You have to build a wall, have tough immigration control if you want to preserve your native life. This goes for plants, for animals, and for people. The most important task for a nation state is to survive. That's even more important than, say, following international law. You never know what someone else will do. So your best chance at survival is making yourself as strong and as connected as possible. Common denominator in all political punditry, of which I am aware, is self-assertion, a.k.a. I see things that you don't see, and therefore you need to listen to me. Uh, crime waxes or wanes, depending upon our willingness to punish criminals. All right, If we just put away the 500 people causing the most havoc on the New York uh, subway, or on the Los Angeles subway, as Steve Saylor suggests, we could uh, severely diminish crime, make using public transport a far more pleasant experience. Okay, uh, you don't have democracy versus dictatorship. Every functioning democracy contains considerable elements of dictatorship, as well as considerable elements of socialism, considerable elements of capitalism, considerable elements of oligopoly. So. United States of America is not just a democracy, it's not just a dictatorship, it's not just a socialist system or a capitalist or an oligopoly, or an oligopoly. it's combinations of all those. Uh, President of the United States has virtually unlimited foreign policy power, the same basic foreign policy power as King George III. There's no magic key to unlocking how the world works, it's not the Illuminati or the Bundaberg Group or Jews. Closest thing we have to a magic key to unlocking reality is the predictive power of IQ for large groups. So goodness, the character trait of being a decent person, for example, requires empathy, which is a form of abstract thought, and the capacity for abstract thought is measured by IQ. So if a thousand eighty IQ people spill a drink on the floor of a public gathering, 
and 1,100 IQ people spilled the same amount of the same liquid, and 1,120 IQ people spilled the same amount of the same liquid, the higher IQ groups will be more diligent about cleaning up the spill so other people don't trip and fall. Left and right wing politics are modern evolutionary adaptations that have enabled our ancestors to pass on their genes. So in some circumstances, a left-wing approach to reality will be more adaptive to passing on your genes. In other circumstances, a right-wing approach will be more adaptive. Uh, we only have left and right in political terms since the late 18th century. But these basic tendencies go back for thousands upon thousands of years. They are evolutionary adaptations. So what we now call the political left is an evolutionary adaptation that uh, tends to go along with support for equality. It is more eager to try new ways of organizing society and individuals and families. So it's more tolerant of departures from tradition, and it tends to want to punish more leniently violations of group norms. The right is more supportive of authority, hierarchy, order, and punishment for wrongdoers. Our political, cultural, personal tendencies are strongly influenced by our genes. So from a strictly secular perspective, religion is a subset of culture, which comes from the combination of genes and environment. So one should not be surprised that African Christianity is very different from Scandinavian Christianity. As long as tens of millions of people, such as the Japanese, are more decent, more law-abiding than the most committed nations of monotheists, I don't know how one can argue that God is necessary for ethics or creating an ethical society, which is something I believe most of my life. So I come to realize that our behavior is primarily shaped by who we love more than by our beliefs, more than by our religious texts, and more by our ritual and religious practices. Most people do not get their primary meaning in life from politics. Most people get their meaning in life from family. And if they have room in their life after taking care of family, they get their meaning from their work, from their friends, and from their interests. Pundits, to maintain their uniqueness, inevitably trend towards promoting conspiracy theories. Because if all they can give you is the conventional wisdom found in the New York Times, then no one's going to turn to them. Uh, nobody has the right to anything, right? Unless you are lucky enough to live in a society that is strong and enforces rights but all your rights can be taken away at any time due to a real or a putative emergency. We saw that with COVID. COVID comes along, all sorts of rights of freedom of assembly, freedom of travel that we took for granted just removed. We are not individuals with inalienable rights like the Declaration of Independence says. We are primarily members of families, extended families, tribes, and nations, and the rights that our group, our family, our tribe, our nation can afford us will vary depending upon circumstances. So I think those are my basic political opinions. And then my personal rules for life, at all times, by all means, preach what you believe and occasionally use words. All right, that's by legend, according to Francis of Assisi. But in essence, that means we're always transmitting. If you're happy, you're going to transmit happiness. If you're sad, you're going to transmit sadness, no matter what your words and sensible actions. Uh, to enter into any kind of relationship. So I have a relationship with you, the viewer of a relationship with Colin Liddell, who's been a regular on this show. All right, to enter into any kind of relationship is to start a countdown on inevitably feeling betrayed, meaning 
you will at some point inevitably be shocked that the other person has different priorities from what you expected, such as you are not their top concern at all times. Man, I'm getting overwhelmed by the attention from YouTube. Five live viewers right now. Uh, do not separate yourself from the community. Right? When you watch Chimp Empire on Netflix, you see that the chimps who leave the herd are placing themselves in great peril, and some of them get killed. Some situations, you will be a concentration camp inmate, and in other situations, you will be a concentration camp guard. So the situation will consistently shape you as much or more than your supposedly inherent characteristics. So if you want to stay faithful, or you want to stay sober, right, or you want to stay prosperous, you want to stay solvent, avoid those situations that will endanger you, and stay in the situations that will bring out the best in you. Uh, live as though everyone knows everything, as opposed to trying to get away with as much as possible. That's from James Burnham. As soon as you go online to comment about life, you will feel a tug to be impulsive and to develop an inflated sense of your own importance. You will feel tempted to ignore social proprieties. You will feel tempted to discuss dark topics that you would normally avoid in face-to-face -face interaction. So these tendencies, if not successfully resisted, will damage your life. That comes from the terrific 2011 book, Virtually You, The Dangerous Powers of the E-Personality. You want to snap back into a sense of reality. I don't know about you, but my, my balloon doesn't always attach itself to the ground. My balloon starts floating away very easily from reality. So what tends to snap me back to reality is I think about how my selfishness is hurting other people. That sobers me up, snaps me back into reality. I think about people who have loved me. That sobers me up, it snaps me back into reality. I remember the stupid things I've done, my failures, my transgressions, my humiliations. That sobers me up, snaps me back into reality. Uh, it's absolutely inevitable that we will compare ourselves constantly to others, and we will also inevitably try to find ways to convince ourselves that we are superior to them. Right? We need to do this sort of comparison for information and for connection. We need to believe we are more significant than we are, otherwise we would be crushed by our own insignificance. But you can do this comparison in a sober, advantageous way, or you can do it in a destructive way. If you quickly and completely confess what you did wrong, you can overcome most of your mistakes with people. Uh, virtue signaling is virtuous. It is a virtuous thing to virtue signal. So people who wa walk around wearing a mask outside or wearing a mask in their car, yeah, on the one hand, it's stupid. On the other hand, that they are signaling that they are virtuous people who take the threat of uh, a deadly influenza seriously so virtue signaling has an idiotic component, but overall, virtue signaling is virtuous. It's a good thing. Animals are constantly signaling, right? Why would human beings be anything else? What would you rather people signal? That they are bad people? That they are cruel people? I think people signaling that they are virtuous is a good thing. If you react to an angry person with empathy, they will usually calm down. Act and speak as though your words and your actions were accurately represented on the front page of the New York Times, all right? So this is the single best test I'm aware of for gauging what is appropriate and proper and right behavior. We're all driven to improve our social status, but the more extreme and out of kilter our drive, the more likely we are to step on the toes of other people, and they will retaliate. 
and they will hurt us. Good way of judging one's importance in a particular profession is how much income you legitimately, legally, and ethically can derive from it. You bid for someone's attention and you fail, perhaps try once more. Don't go beyond that. If you must give someone unsolicited advice, do it only once. You can't help yourself and you do it again. Forgive yourself for being a bloody fool and try to limit yourself. When I have a painful confrontation with someone, I look for where I am at fault. When someone criticizes me, I try to look for where I am at fault. When someone important to me says something, I look for how they could possibly be right. I carry around people important to me in my heart. All right, they affect how I conduct myself. They affect how I speak. If I forget my boss's interests or my client's interests, I lose that boss or that client, right? Lose that job. If I forget my friend's interests, I lose those friends. I want to live so as to simultaneously develop those relationships and friendships most important to me and simultaneously pursue what I believe to be right. These two things are often in conflict. I don't want to fall down on either side of the spectrum. I want to seek the middle path here. Freedom and community are in opposition. So I will regularly sacrifice some freedom for community and some community for freedom. Just because you don't like something doesn't mean you need to be angry about it. Just because I don't like something does not mean it is not good for me. When you avoid things that make you uncomfortable, you put yourself in a prison of anxiety and depression. Happy, successful people tend to be more willing than average to appropriately extend trust to others. If you're not living in reality, your dreams and visions will turn into straitjackets and nightmares. We all need more power, and the best way to get more power is to connect with other people. Losers lose themselves in drama, producers minimize drama. If you can't get love in your life, you will maladaptively seek attention to compensate. That has been a driving energy behind much of my <laughs> online activity. We all belong to multiple hierarchies. We will tend to value the one in which we rank the highest. So consider the mailroom clerk as also the best player on the company's softball team. The latter may be emphasized and become a source of considerable self-esteem. That's a quote from somewhere. We weren't born yesterday. We did not evolve to be gullible about our own welfare. Advertising and propaganda do not change us unless we want to change. You're extremely unlikely to change someone else's bad behavior. The more you call that person out, the more likely he's going to get defensive and double down on his bad behavior. That's the Wall Street Journal. What is the most honest part of the body? Your feet, right? Your feet never lie. Right? So if you're talking to someone and your feet are pointing somewhere else, that means you want to get away, right? Your feet tell you your priorities. Your head and your heart are often delusional. How, do you, how you behave is who you are. How you behave is what you truly believe. If you want to know the truth about yourself, about your character, look at how you behave. That's from Herb K. When we encounter things we can't handle, we will tend to react with fight, flight, freeze, or fawn. Right? So these reflexes will usually quickly translate into emotions of anger, such as fighting, fear, such as flight, or hiding, such as freezing. Uh, humility simply means accepting reality. Insanity means denying the truth. Sanity means accepting the truth. Be who you need to be during the workday as a subordinate, an assistant, a cashier, a janitor, a clerk, but don't forget who you are, your vision. Communication builds on itself just as hiding collapses on itself. Polish here and shine there from the Karate Kid. If you have a problem in one area of your life, right, you have this problem all over your life, you just can't see it. So if you habitually overeat, I guarantee that you habitually overindulge in other areas of your life. You habitually lie in dating. You lie in other areas of your life. 
you're nasty with your spouse, you're likely nasty to others as well. If you lie about what you believe and what you practice with your religion, you likely do the same in other areas of your life. If you get in panic attacks in elevators, you likely have this same anxiety problem in other areas of your life. If you hide in one area of your life, you're probably hiding in many areas of your life. Can't control yourself on social media, likely have unmanageability in many areas of your life. You smoke too much or watch too much TV, you likely overdo many other things. If you are vague with your exercise commitment, you likely are vague in many areas of your life. People tend to find you annoying in one aspect of your life. You're likely obnoxious in other areas of your life too. You have an instinctive suspicion or hatred of people in authority at work or in your religion. You likely have this baggage with authority elsewhere in your life. You can't get over loss in your love life. You have this problem elsewhere in your life. Most circumstances, if you align with reality or with God, you will feel content and serene. If you don't feel content and serene, in most circumstances, it means you're not aligned with reality. If you're not aligned with reality, if you're not serene and content most of the time, you will hurt other people, hurt people, hurt people. So we're constantly transmitting who we are to others. Ah, there's a line from Dennis Prager. When you text, you don't just text words, you also text you. You learn to help somebody, ask yourself, if you yearn to help somebody, ask yourself your motivation. Is it coming from a good place or a bad place? You want to tell a joke. Is it because you want to transmit joy or to seek attention? Not sure about saying something. Ask yourself, is it helpful? Is it true? Is it necessary? Is it timely? Am I the one to say it? How you do anything is how you do everything. And let's see. Colin Liddell, what's going on, Colin? Oh, man. Is it, is it on my end? Um, hmm. Let's see. Yeah, I'm not hearing you, Colin, and I don't think it's on my end. So just, um, oh, hey, 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 how, how are you, Colin? Yeah, pretty good, Luke. How are you? Good, good. So what are, what are your 12 rules for life? <laughs> I don't think you should have uh, rules. You know, I don't think you should be because rules um, impose a kind of rigidity and they limit your freedom of action. I think you should just have uh, an ever-evolving common sense. And were you? Did you grow up with an ever-evolving sense of common sense, or is that something that you've developed, or both? Yeah, I guess. Um, I think I probably did, or I might have acquired it along the way, but uh, I think um, I always had um, a kind of um, sensible approach to life, sort of, um, you know, kept things in proportion, don't overreact, you know, like see what's going on, uh, figure out the angles, you know. So, I mean, it's all kind of quite basic stuff, really. I mean, either you're born with it or you have to learn it or you're, you're fucked, really. <laughs> and did you notice that that your your common sense was decidedly uncommon in dissident political circles? Uh, yeah. Well, yes and no. I mean, uh, dissident political circles. It's easy to poo-poo uh, dissident political circles, but I do think they have a um, legitimate uh, reason for existing. Uh, things do have to be critiqued from a kind of radical perspective now and then. Uh, without that uh, vital critique from um, 
from the from the uh, fringe, uh, a lot of uh, important uh, prospectus will be missed. Absolutely, but it is kind of breathtaking the lack of of common sense among prominent personalities in distant circles, which you have chronicled endlessly on your various blogs and short pods. Uh, yeah, it's kind of uh, become weighed down by all these um, kind of personal psychodramas and um, personal issues that people have that they bring into the distant right and all these petty beefs and, um, you know, turf wars that go on. So uh, the thing does need some sort of structure and hygiene. And, and you're the fumigator. Uh, no, no, I don't. Uh, I'm not going to volunteer for that role. Uh, your Andy Nowicki piece just struck me as painfully, painfully true. Was it a painful piece to write? Uh, not really, no. I just thought, you know, let's write about Andy and um, let's try and be honest and truthful, you know, not to uh, beat around the bush too much. I mean, uh, he is going off the, the deep end, really. He is um, a bit of a, you know, conspirator nutcase by now, I have to say, you know, um, from what he's, you know, said about various things. Um, I was never against Andy being a bit of a conspirator. Our disagreement began when I said, that's fine, Andy, but can you just, like, dig into it and uh, find find out the actual data I mean, yeah, and that's much more important in a case like that. I mean, if if you're um, pushing a conspiracy theory, you know, exclamation marks, uh, you have a duty to to try and back it up with the the data as much as possible. And Andy seemed to be very kind of unwilling to um, to do that, in my opinion. Uh, he seemed to be much more emotionally invested in it, and uh, I could understand why that was. You know, looking at um, you know the way his life had it turned out was andy the the individual you you knew best out of anyone that you've chronicled in your series who's who on the alt right um not really cuz there's a lot of things about andy I, I just can't um you know um resonate with you know uh, just somebody being a Catholic, for example, uh, I just, uh, that doesn't make any sense to me. Anyway, I mean, I find it very difficult to believe in Christians. I mean, Christians probably have enough time, enough trouble trying to believe in God. And I, I have enough trouble trying to believe in Christians. I don't think uh, most Christians are genuine. I think that they are um, kind of LARPing in a strange way. Uh, I'd say I understand Richard Spencer a bit better because he's sort of more along my way of thinking in some respects, at least. Well, Christian makes sense if you're married with four kids and you want to stay married and you want to be part of, say, a community, uh, particularly a community that you might have grown up in, right? If you're gonna, if you intend to stay married, devote yourself to having a family, raising children, then then does uh, being a Christian make more sense to you? Well, you're talking about it more as a kind of uh, form of social behavior. And 
uh, you know, this is these are religions, and religions only exist if people believe in them, literally believe in them. You know, like they literally think there's a god up there who's literally uh, looking down at them and documenting their every move. And I don't really think people believe that. And uh, you know, so um, there is the um, the thing you're talking about, which is more of a kind of Jewish perspective, where you have a certain kind of uh, culture and um, a set of um, kind of customs and um, not beliefs, but uh, sort of uh, things that you pay lip service to. And uh, there's a kind of um, cynicism perhaps in that as well, but it's very functional and it uh, keeps everybody sort of in the same group and from that accrues certain benefits. Um, but it's very different from like sincerely believing in a certain religion. And this is the problem with all these kind of so-called faith-based ideology is they actually require people to believe in them. And, uh, you know, you, you've heard a lot in recent months about Christian nationalism and people like Nick Fuentes and Milo uh, Yiannopoulos going on about it. And these are obviously people who have no real uh, Christian faith, and it would be very difficult for them to have it. And uh, most people would have great difficulty in maintaining a, a sincere and serious Christian faith in, in the modern age, if, especially if they had a, an IQ above 80. Now, did you live any substantial portion of your life within a Christian community? Uh, definitely not, no. Um, okay. Christianity had already sort of uh, given up the ghost in my family like uh, one or at least one or two generations before me well I, I did grow up a christian and christianity as lived is just overwhelmingly a social cultural experience uh what you believe about god plays almost no role in the day-to-day -day life of your average christian it's a social experience. There's a particular place that you gather on Sundays or Saturdays, depending on your denomination. And there's a school that you go to, and there's a certain rhythm to life, and there are certain practices. But there's you know, what, what you actually believe about God and theology is a very tiny concern for only a very tiny number of, of people. So... I mean, I'm just thinking, I mean, I was just a kid, but I never spoke to my kids about, you know, other kids about what they believed about God or church doctrine. It just never came up. And I was growing up on Seventh-day Adventist college campuses, went to Seventh-day Adventist schools, went to Seventh-day Adventist churches. Everything we did was Seventh-day Adventists. Everything, everyone we knew, everyone I was friends with was Seventh-day Adventists, but we never talked about belief. So I think it is primarily a, a cultural, social experience for the overwhelming number of people, and they don't really sweat the doctrine and the dogma. Yeah, there's a kind of disingenuous quality to it. It's almost as if they they know it's all fake, the people who run it, and they don't want to really touch that third rail of really um, you know, pushing people's literal faith in their so-called faith. Hmm. Uh, Nick Fuentes and his Christianity, it's, it's unlike any Christianity of which I'm aware. I mean, he never seems to actually go to church. Uh, he doesn't seem to have a connection with any clergyman who, who guides him. 
uh it just seems to me to be a, a more socially acceptable way of you know going about the the, the politics that he that he has do you do you have any thoughts on uh, uh nick's uh, christianity uh, yeah, I think it's non-existent. I think it's fake. I think he just uses it to, um, you know, like push certain agendas. It's a it's a good way for uh, him to um, be a little bit uh, counter-Semitic, shall we say? Yeah. And and same with Milo. I mean, Milo, you know, did a big song and dance about how religious he's become and turning his back on on uh, homosexuality. My my thought was always, well, if this is real. He will try to make amends for all the people he screwed over. Like we'll start to hear, you know, Milo came to me and he apologized. He cataloged, you know, the things that he did against me, and he asked me how he could make amends for. And I didn't get any of that. So with Milo again, it just seemed like a, you know, another method for for self assertion. Uh, any thoughts on Milo's Christianity? Uh, yeah, for a kind of. Fat flagrantly homosexual man like uh, Milo, becoming a Christian is a kind of homosexuality if you think about it. So it's, it's a way to to do something very, very taboo from uh, the perspective of being a, a flagrant homosexual. Yeah, it's, a, it's another form of dress-up. Yeah, it's another form of degeneracy, really, uh, you know, if you think of it, because like for somebody like Milo, uh, who's a flagrant homosexual he's kind of normalized all the um degeneracy of homosexuality and then from that perspective all that, uh, that homosexual de degeneracy is normalized so something like christianity uh, appears like a, a a kind of alien other and therefore it becomes a kind of um a substitute degeneracy so to speak so there's a kind of psychological pattern where he's um kind of breaking the normalcy that he's in uh, you, Jason Kessler has left, apparently. <laughs> this isn't right because nobody bought him a computer, as you so eloquently wrote. Uh, any thoughts on the departure of uh, Jason Kessler from Metapolitics? Uh, yeah, yeah, Jason, yeah. Um, uh Probably it's, it's for it's for the best. I think uh, he'll be better off. I don't think um, you know he was getting anything out of it. Um, you know, I think um, you know he he got. I, I I don't really know the full story behind Jason Kessler. There's a lot of rumors. There's uh, talk about him being a Fed and so on. There's talk about him um, being a bit of a left winger uh, a couple of years before the Unite the Right thing. So who really knows what the backstory is? Maybe, you know, um, he's just being pulled, pulled in and uh, told to knock it off by his superiors. Or maybe it is uh, a genuine case of somebody who was um, kind of uh, sucked into the alt-right and thought he could uh, do some good. Um, but, uh, yeah, I think... Um, the problem, the problem he had uh, was that it was uh, his main thing. It was, it became his uh, apparently, anyway, assuming that uh, you know uh, everything we see is on the level. 
and he was trying to make a living at it. And uh, for anybody to try and make a living at dissident politics, you have to be either very, very insane or very, very talented. Uh, very, very few people can make a living at it. I never, I never thought that I could make a living at dissident politics. I mean, I had my money already, uh, you know, uh, salted away, and um, I wasn't too worried about, you know, the financial side of uh, being in dissident politics. So, I think if you're if you're going into it and it's going to be your main thing and your your way of um, uh, sort of uh, keeping the wolf from the door, then you're in big trouble. Now, you believe that uh, the Chinese and the Russians have used dissident politics on either the far right or the far left to destabilize the United States and to weaken it. I, I wonder why the Chinese and the Russians didn't want to invest more in Jason Kessler. Well, that's not part of their... I, I, I assume that uh, it's not part of their uh, system. Their system is um, to weaponize all these kinds of people and to get the um, the dissidents done for free in that sense. And uh, they, they put their resources into things like uh, bot farms and um, you know, um, all sorts of kind of influence operations like uh, things like Zero Hedge and uh, the UNS uh, review and things like that. So uh, it's very, very structured and they don't want to pay everybody that's in the dissident uh, movement. I mean, they uh, basically the, the Russians and the Chinese tried to kick up all sorts of dissidents, both from the nationalist right and from the left wing and from various ethnic uh, grievance groups. And that's a lot of people they're trying to um, sort of radicalize and they don't want to actually pay each and every one of them, you know, or even a, a substantial minority of them. They want to get as much of that done uh, for free as possible. So it's a question of like um, utilizing people's naivety and sort of um, uh, using them up and burning them out. Uh, a few months ago, the Daily Wire offered uh, Stephen Crowder a four-year, $50 million contract. I mean, surely that wasn't primarily a, a contract that was about business. There, there had to be, I would expect, something else going on there. I mean, can you get your head around uh, Daily Wire offering Stephen Crowder $50 million for you know, four years of making live streams? I'm not really a, a, a follower of uh, Stephen Crowder's content. And so a lot of these things are very, very um, intricate and involved. And it's very, very hard to nail down things. They're, they're also extremely nebulous. And uh, I mean, I try to um, back up everything I say. I try to find clear references to anything I say. So I don't want to be too speculative. I don't want to be too conspiratorial. Uh, conspiratardic in this sense. Um, I think people should be skeptical about uh, anything that's going on in the distant uh, world. Um, they should be thinking about what um, kind of um, you know foreign interference there is, and uh, they should be looking at, at the numbers, like uh, how do these things pay for themselves? If things can't 
pay for themselves in an obvious way, then it probably means there is somebody uh, behind the scenes manipulating them and uh, you know financing them for um, ulterior motives. Any thoughts on uh, Tucker Carlson getting unexpectedly fired by Fox News? Um, was it unexpected? I mean, I think um, Tucker has been sailing pretty close to the wind for a long time. I mean, a, a few years ago, they were going on about, uh, you know, he was losing uh, Fox News advertisers. And I, I thought that would have been a death sentence. But uh, surprisingly, they managed to uh, kind of keep him in there, even though he was losing them advertising money. Um, and I think uh, that, that um, I guess he was maybe attracting viewers that might have been bringing some income into Fox News. But uh, obviously, he was uh, kind of cruising for a bruising. And, uh, you know, the way he was going on, um, it was going to kind of end badly, I, I, I thought. So I wasn't too surprised when they kind of um, you know, pulled the string on, on him. And uh, what's going on with Mark Collette these days? Has he crossed your radar recently? Uh, no, no, I haven't really noticed um, anything from um, Patriotic Alternative and Mark Collette for some time. Um, they seem to have dropped off the radar or they've certainly dropped off my radar anyway and what what about trs and mike enoch oh well i try to keep uh, occasional tabs on these people but you know um there's only so much time in the day to uh, expend on these uh, kind of like rather uh, petty issues yeah and uh what what is Nick Fuentes doing? So he signed on to be something for for Kanye West. Is he still streaming? Is he doing anything of that's crossing your radar? Yeah, I mean, most of um, my my way of keeping in touch with with things really is to see what comes up on Twitter. You know, um. And occasionally I do see things by Nick Fuentes. He seems to still be quite active. He's doing his um, his usual kind of uh, podcasts. Um, I haven't actually checked in on Cozy TV for some time. And this whole kind of Ali Alexander, uh, Yay24, Milo kind of uh, uh, shit show has, has, has kind of blown up in recent weeks. And... Um, I'm not really sure if uh, Nick has an answer answer for it, you know, because um, it does kind of uh, make him look bad. It, um, and also, Nick has to keep doing something new. And after a while, that becomes harder and harder. You know, it's like um, with uh, popular music, you know, you, um, you know, if you keep having to um, push the envelope, it becomes harder and harder to make music that sounds good. And so... You know, uh, he's a very talented person and he's he's obviously got a lot of, um, you know, verbal skills and wit and so on. But after a while, he, you know, even somebody like Nick Fuentes um, kind of consumes himself and paints himself into a corner. And what about Jean-Francois Garapide? Have you paid him any mind of late? Um, occasionally, I uh, I see people posting about him. I mean, I think sometimes you um, run a clip or two on your show, don't you? And yes. uh, there's nothing really 
that we haven't seen before, you know, years ago, really. I think it's um, it's all very much of a muchness with uh, people like Fuentes and uh, Gary P and so on. Um, I mean, Richard Spencer's sort of tr trying to reinvent himself and, you know, that's sort of semi-interesting. You know, he's, he's, um, he's, he's still got some good takes on things and he's still quite interesting to listen to. Um, so I think it all comes down to ideas. Um, it's all about ideas. If people have good ideas and a good critique and good analysis, then it's got uh, legs on it. And if they, if they're um, kind of peddling retarded ideas like Christian nationalism or something, then it's going to, um, you know, just um, uh, go off a cliff at some point. Well, uh, Christian nationalism, why, why would that not be an incredibly potent force in America? Like, it's kind of weird for me as a Jew to look at Christian America and and I think, why would Christians not want to run America according to, you know, their own standards? So it would seem to me that Christian nationalism would, should be an incredibly potent force in, in America. Uh, yeah, you'd, you'd think so. But uh, if it was going to happen, why uh, wouldn't it have happened a lot sooner? Oh, because are... you have to be pushed to the wall for... for something like this because christian nationalists you know are rarely very christian it's just a a nicer way of organizing rather than on racial lines yeah maybe but uh you know i think america's always had a large um group of people who have seen them as seen themselves as christian who have wanted to impose christian values on the world who have been concerned about uh the way that modernity and uh, individualism and consumerism was pushing society and so there's always been that, um, so, you know, in theory, at least, there's always been that uh, basis for something like Christian nationalism. But instead of happening like in the last uh, 100 years or so, it's had to wait until the advent of Nick Fuentes. That doesn't really add up in my view. So I think there are there is something inbuilt uh, in the idea of Christian nationalism that uh, makes it impossible to happen, which um, kind of cuts it off at the knees before it even uh, can put its shoes on. Uh, have you thought about where Tucker Carlson might land? Do you think uh, Fox News might be regretting their decision given the crashing ratings? What, what do you think is next for Tucker? Well, um, yeah, I'd, I'd have to look into that. Like, are the ratings actually crashing? Are they... Uh, is it a downward blip? Is it a long-term thing? Um, you know, people will, um, I mean, it's, like, it's a bit like this um, this Bud Light thing, you know, uh, people were uh, going on as if, uh, uh, you know, Budweiser had been had finally been brought to their, their knees, but uh, apparently not going by their uh, stock valuation. Uh, so I'm not really sure how much um, damage uh, Fox News is suffering from Tucker and, uh, and whether it's permanent or or not, you know. So we'll have to wait and see on that, and uh, we'll have to kind of look at the data and try and find reliable data to uh, uh, estimate uh, what's going on there. Um, but yeah, I mean, somebody like Tucker comes along, and they have a following, and then um, they have their moments, and um, you know, something they they eventually 
they they kind of run out of road. And I think in um, you know the case of Tucker, um, that's what happened really. You know, he uh, his his shtick was starting to get a bit stale. It was starting to get a bit try hard. Uh, he seemed to be kind of whipping himself up into a frenzy more and more in order to try and uh, you know get some sort of um, response from his increasingly jaded audience. That's 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 in my impression. I mean. Uh, I can't um, sort of uh, verify that without uh, um, sort of going into it in a lot more detail. But that was my my rough impression. He seemed to be trying hard, trying too hard, and uh, I, there was a sense that um, you know the, the whole Tucker thing had kind of come and gone. And so maybe Fox uh, anyway needed to um, you know like uh, rethink things and and uh, sort of give somebody else a chance. So yeah. it might. It might actually be good timing to, uh, you know, get rid of Tucker. What will happen with Tucker now? It's not really uh, clear. You know, there's been people talking about Tucker running for president and so on. Um, not really sure if um, he's that interested in doing that or not. You know, we'll see. If, if he did run for president, it might be interesting, you know, to see if there was any um, kind of grassroots response. Uh, you would think that presumably going by his uh, popularity on Fox News that there would be some kind of uptake if if Tucker tried to to run and um, yeah so come on Tucker it's up to you let's see the next chapter so right now it looks like Donald Trump has a stranglehold hold on the Republican nomination uh, Ron DeSantis hasn't been doing too well and it looks right now that uh, Trump is is crushing him any thoughts on the Republican contest? And, and then there's that Vivek Ramaswamy guy who seems incredibly eloquent. Uh, I notice he's rising in the polls, and, and I notice a lot of enthusiasm about him on Twitter. Uh, yeah, it's just uh, Trump just looks so... Um, first of all, he looks old. Um it looks a bit stale. It's, uh, you know, I mean, of course, there's an edgy quality to Trump. There's a way of speaking which that, um, you know, creates sparks. But it's something we've all seen before. And most people kind of think, oh, yeah, there's old Trumpy again, you know, blowing, blowing off. And um, we, we know that there's not really that much substance uh, behind um, all the rhetoric. And so there's a sense that uh, people are a bit, you know, jaded with Trump. He's a bit played out. And so there is definitely a need for um, somebody new. Uh, Ron DeSantis doesn't quite do it. He doesn't have the charisma. He is a bit of a kind of meatball type of character. Um, I mean, he's, he's obviously um, quite an effective politician at a certain level. But uh, he doesn't seem to have that X, X factor that, uh, you know, you, you probably need at, uh, at present in the Republican Party to sort of make a difference. And so there is a kind of um, a yawning chasm for something new to happen. And I don't know if, it, if, if um, what we're seeing is, um, is going to fill that chasm, you know. So if, if it is Trump again, it's going to be kind of... Um, uh, I don't know. It's going to be a bit grim, really, to see Trump run again. In uh, you know, with the, with his usual shtick, he has even more um, 
dif uh, difficult baggage to to log around. He's got this whole kind of uh, January the sixth thing. He's got this, this stolen election thing. He's got all this um, kind of lawfare that's been used against him. And 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 instead of being about politics, it just becomes about this personality, this um, this kind of cheap soap opera. And I mean, I really think politics shouldn't be about personalities. It should be much more about ideas and policies. And uh, Trump really cuts across that with his whole um, me, me, me kind of shtick. And uh, I, I, I personally, I feel a bit um, bored with the with the whole Trump train and uh, the debris and the wreckage of that particular train. And what about on the Democratic side in the run for for their presidential nomination right now it looks like joe biden has it locked up on the other hand biden's got really low approval ratings he looks you know pretty frail old man yeah again it's it's, it's almost like a mirror image it's um it's some old guy who's there who's dominating everything uh there's a few other people who could come into the picture but they, they don't really seem up to the job either um so I also on the um the democrat side there's a a crying need for somebody new to to show up and i don't, I don't mean um you know this uh, robert kennedy junior character because he's obviously a complete flake and i don't think he'll amount to much uh back across the atlantic ocean uh england seems to have a more than competent uh prime minister any any thoughts on Britain's prime minister and how he's perhaps rescuing the the uh, Tory party from an overwhelming defeat in the next election? Yeah, I mean, the, the Tories haven't really done too much wrong by British mainstream political standards, which of course means that by kind of more radical um, dissident uh, standards uh, they've done a lot wrong but you know we won't go into that but uh, just looking at it in terms of kind of normie politics the, uh, the Tory party is um, doing not a bad job and that was the case even with Boris Johnson Boris Johnson he was a shambolic character in many ways but he was he didn't really make too many missteps I think obviously he overdid the um, the COVID response and the lockdowns and the furlough and so on. And that kind of caused all sorts of problems. And maybe that would have been fine if these other problems hadn't come along, you know, but apart from that, they've, they've, they seem to be at least trying to do the right thing, you know, and I think um, Rishi does seem to be um, particularly competent. Um, you know, he, he does seem to be just tackling um things in a very straightforward way. He's set out his agenda. These are all policies that um, resonate with the British public, which are um, kind of uh, obvious and clear to see. And so he has clear targets and um, he's gone about trying to hit those targets. So um, he could actually do well enough to uh, make the next election quite a close run thing and uh you know avoid Keir Starmer becoming um prime minister and you know Keir Starmer uh to me he seems like a kind of uh, deep state uh plant almost you know the um 
the, uh, they, they went to great pains to get rid of Jeremy Corbyn, from what I can tell, the, uh, the establishment that is. And, uh, you know, they, they were very worried about uh, Jeremy Corbyn's popularity and the possibility of him becoming prime minister and getting control of the, um, the nuclear weapons. And um, apparently, um, well, supposedly uh, giving them away or uh, abolishing them. So, you know, I think that the, the British establishment decided to take a hand and they decided to get a, a safe pair of hands uh, in the main opposition party. So, um, yeah, at the moment, it still looks like Labour should win. But I think um, somebody extrapolated from the uh, recent uh, local elections that uh, if there was a general general election held in Britain, it would be a hung parliament. Hmm. And if I was an employee of a large corporation, I'd want someone like Rishi Sunak, uh, you know, running the ship. He, he he seems more than competent. Uh, yes, mm. but um, I don't think um, I'm in favour of um, some Punjabi guy running Britain. Uh, I think there might be a bit of a, a brown lash, you know, um, not a backlash, but a a brown lash because there are rather too many uh, people from the subcontinent in prominent positions in the UK, as you as you know, the Mayor of London, the Home Secretary, uh, the Scottish First Minister. You have all these people who are brown and you have a um, rather glaring underrepresentation of white people at the higher positions of government. And so I think uh, there could be a bit of a brown lash where people um, without really knowing the reason, just kind of um, are repelled in some way. And no matter if uh, Rishi does a good job or not, it might be undervalued for that reason. Hmm. Uh, Coach Redpill, a you know, right-wing internet personality and dating coach, was arrested in Ukraine. It's just so weird that he would hang out in Ukraine for well over a year. 15 months while Ukraine's at war, they're producing online content, mocking and belittling Ukraine, producing pro-Russia, pro-Putin content from Ukraine, where he is, you know, not a citizen. And I, I'm just surprised that it, that uh, he's been hanging out there pulling this off. What on earth did he think w would happen to him? So yeah, he's he's been arrested. Any thoughts on the arrest of Coach Redpill? Not really, no. No, I think uh, uh, he was an idiot. Um, he got arrested. Um, uh, if he was doing it from the other side, like if he was living in Russia, uh, producing pro-Ukrainian content, uh, it'd be interesting to, to see what would happen to him. <laughs> Anything about the war in Ukraine that's uh, caught your attention since the last uh, couple of months? Well, it's sort of grinding on. Um, I think uh, people are waiting for the Ukrainian offensive. Um, they've been um, preparing. They've uh, trained up a lot of uh, military units. They have some uh, uh, quite a lot of new equipment. And the, the Russian equipment is um, quite substandard now. They've lost a lot of their best gear. Um, 
but still it's very very hard to call what's going to happen it's very very hard to um to um, estimate how fragile um the ukrainians have become or the russians have become um you hear all sorts of crazy things from the russian side uh you know some of them sound really weird like uh they, they could crack within a matter of days or weeks and uh, this thing with the wagner group threatening to pull out of uh, bakhmut and all these kind of um these these uh, rumors of mutinies and rebellions and um so there's there's a lot of um there's a lot of um narrative swirling around it's very very hard to to pick out what's really going on and or how solid these narratives are um so i think um it really matters what happens on the battlefield and if the ukrainians can do some real damage to the russians with their um, spring offensive then that could uh, hopefully get things moving uh, to some sort of conclusion because i don't think any of us really want this war to kind of drag on and on and uh, kind of eat up and consume more and more human lives um so yeah i hope something happens soon to uh, resolve it in some way and it's very hard to resolve it without the russians losing i feel because uh, if the russians win that really won't be accepted um and they won't be accepted by the Russians. They'll still feel insecure. They'll still feel they have to, um, you know, attempt something else. The West will uh, be very unsatisfied if the Russians succeed. And so that would be an, un an unstable resolution. However, if the Ukrainians were able to succeed and get back their territory, that would um, lead to a point at which um, there would be some sort of st a stable end to the war, I feel. So I think the, uh, the Ukrainians really have to do something for this uh, war to um, stop dragging on. And uh, do you think uh, China's loving this? The United States is distracted, uh, perhaps makes it easier for China to take Taiwan? Um, well, I don't know. The I don't think the Americans are really putting that much into it. I think they're still mainly focused on Asia. Uh, I think the Chinese probably aren't ready to um, make a big move in against Taiwan. Um, so, yeah, I don't think the Chinese um, tend to play things that way as well. I think they tend to to be more cautious. Uh, so I don't think uh, it's really going to benefit them directly. And I think they are much more interested in a uh, longer term strategy. And they want to really kind of um, present themselves as the, um, the kind of, um, I mean, they want, to, they want to kind of present themselves the way that America likes to present itself as this sort of um, even handed, a middleman character who can sort of um, enforce a kind of global order. And so they're trying to preempt America's position in some way. So, um, yeah, I mean, I don't think the the, uh, the Chinese are going to do anything insane, but, you know, you never know, you never know, but uh, I doubt it.
And uh, did you read any of uh, Prince Harry's uh, memoir? Um, not really, no, no. Um, why would I bother? I mean, it's all been out in the uh, tabloids for, um, for for years, or all this all this stuff. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I mean, have you have you been uh, reading any good books lately? Uh, yeah, every every book I read is a good book. And uh, do, actually, do any come to mind? Well, actually, the uh, the one that springs to to mind at the moment is I'm I'm reading uh, Dennis Healy's biography. I'm not sure if uh, people would would know who that is now. A former Chancellor of the Exchequer. Yes, yeah, he's a very pivotal figure in the Labour Party in the uh, 19, well, even from the 1950s, uh, but mainly in the 1960s and 1970s and into the 80s. So he was a kind of um, important figure, um, mainly on the kind of uh, right side of the party, uh, kind of an opponent to people like Tony Benn and Michael Foote. And, uh, you know, it's quite interesting. Uh, it's um, very informative about post-war Britain and, um, you know, all the uh, kind of ins and outs of British policy and uh, all the concerns with uh, Britain's declining position and uh, its desire to be part of Europe or not, as the case may be. And, uh, you know, he's actually... Um, the thing that struck me was that uh, he's actually seems quite smarter than I than I initially you know thought he would be, um, because I, I had a mental image of Dennis Healy as a, as a kind of um, slightly flippant character, uh, a bit of a caricature almost, and uh, he seems to be quite a poetic and intellectual type, or at least he's trying to be, you know, because he is a an ex uh, grammar school boy. Well, all, all the major British politicians seem like at least 20 IQ points smarter than American politicians. Is that is that fair analysis? Um, it, 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 on the face of it, it sounds plausible. I mean, they're so much more eloquent. I mean, they're so much more educated. They're so much better read. I mean, and it doesn't necessarily seem to have resulted in any better policies but th they're certainly more erudite well it's the uh, the culture it's the the house of commons the way the house of commons operates probably you know the um sort of debating style of politics where people actually you know debate quite a lot and you don't really see american politicians debating much um you don't really see, I mean, like uh, the British Prime Minister, he has uh, every week, he has to uh, stand up in the House of Commons and do Prime Minister's question time. And, uh, you know, people will ask him quite difficult questions and make insulting remarks and um, critiques of uh, whatever his government has been up to. And his job is to stand up and uh, defend that and create the right kind of sound bites. And, you know, that, just, that does take some sort of skill and uh, you never see somebody like uh, Joe Biden doing that. Um, it's all this, um, you know, softball questioning from journalists uh, or choosing not to speak to journalists if they so, so choose. And uh, the, the U.S. Congress and Senate 
people get up and they, they talk for a few minutes and then they sit down and uh, it's not really a proper debate. It's um, a bit more like the European Parliament, the American Congress. So it's not so um, yeah, adversarial like the, uh, the House of Commons. So I, I think that must be part of it. Uh, what's going on with the rapprochement between South Korea and Japan? Is that proceeding? Um, I'm not really sure. I haven't really checked in on that recently. So I, I assume um, you know both countries have a lot of um, uh, interests in common. So you know I think uh, the long-term trend is that uh, they should um, you know move closer together. Uh, that also. Um, I mean, the other factor is um, the war and the memories of the war and bitterness caused by the war and the Japan's colonial occupation of Korea. But I think that kind of fades with each year. So I think the long-term trends are probably pointed in that direction. You know, the um, um, uh, the Japanese government seems to be quite um, sensible and um, you know, I think they 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 are. Um, taking the right approach more or less but uh you know uh northeast asia is a very um it's a very um how can i say it's a very um difficult area let's say you've got north korea there you've got the russians there uh the chinese of course um personally i think this would be the perfect time for, for uh, japan to uh, take back the northern territories so you know they should um you know, while the Russians are tied up um, in their desperate struggle against the Ukraine, uh, they could uh, the Japanese could could take over half of Siberia, I think, if they had a mind to. Now, there's a character named Chuck Johnson, Charles Johnson, who's done a lot of uh, Twitter spaces with Richard Spencer. Uh, Chuck Johnson's been in and out of the news for six, seven years. I mean, he was the one selecting a lot of the people who went to work in the Trump administration. Uh, he went to a State of the Union with Matt Gates. Have you paid any mind to Chuck Johnson? Yeah, yeah, I sometimes listen to his, um, his um, uh, what do you call them, Twitter streams or whatever mm -hmm. you call them. Um, he says a lot of interest in stuff um it's hard to really nail it down though um there's a kind of um like yeah is this really the case um uh, how can i verify this um it sounds interesting and maybe even plausible but mm, uh, if that was the case wouldn't this mean you know blah de blah de blah so um, there's a lot. There's a there's a there's a bit. Uh, there's there's a rather too many moving parts with uh, Chuck Johnson's um, narrative. So I wouldn't um, sort of um, completely endorse what he's saying. I just sort of keep an open mind on it. And uh, what's uh, dominating Japanese politics these days? Um. Well, Japanese politics, oh God, I don't know, really. It's um it's the same old, same old. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's not 
not, there's nothing like the McLaughlin group in uh, Japanese politics, as I understand it. Yeah, I mean, basically, Japan's just a, a kind of country that's permanently run by its, its deep state, and um, they have a little bit of a, of a, a political shadow play for the um, people who might be interested in that. And, um, you know, uh, it's sort of typified by, you know, um, competence, corruption, and uh, something else beginning with the letter C. <laughs> okay, great. Is there any anything you want to hit before we wind up for today? No, no, I just, uh, you know, like, uh, nice to be on the, the uh, Luke Ford show again. Okay, and, great. And uh, keep, keep on trucking, Luke. Thank you, Colin. Great to talk to you. Thanks, man. Thanks for coming on. Right. Cheers. Bye-bye. Cheers. Okay, take care. Okay, I want to go back to my rules for life. If you love and serve men, you cannot by any hiding or stratagem escape the remuneration. Ralph Waldo Emerson. So if you're an under-owner like I have been most of my life, Right, there are probably some ways that you're not really being of much service and much help to people. What does it mean to put first things first? This is another very important part of my life is to get off to a really good start with every day. So for me, that means a cold shower at the start of the day. Do the most important things in my day in descending order of importance and uh, get clear about what is of secondary importance to myself, such as social media. All right and uh, making sure I don't get sidetracked in the first 10 hours of my day with nonsense. Uh, rushing and trying to multitask assigns to your nervous system that you are not okay. Happiness means loving where you are and what you have. Your nervous system's omnipresent question is, am I safe? Intimacy, purpose, are the first things to go when your nervous system gets corrupted by things like cell phones. Fred Luskin there. Gerald Mundus, author of a book on under-earning and author of a book on how to get out of debt. Says the action, taking the action is the success. The results are out of our hands. Fred Luskin again. Our default emotional state is anxiety. Our protection against this anxiety is connection with people we love. Happiness is the ability to love and to be loved. We are programmed for fight, flight, or freeze. It's only when we feel compassion for ourselves and others that we are in reality. You want to get into reality, think about people you love and who have loved you and feel your gratitude. Stephen Pressfield in his great book, The War of Art. Most of us have two lives, the life we live and the unlived life within us between the two stands resistance. Quote from a study, academic study, saying, have a nice day or take care to a stranger is linked with greater subjective well-being. Minimal social interactions with strangers contribute to subjective well-being in everyday life. So often hang out at uh, dog parks and just say hello to people. Transformation begins when we decide that continuing on as we are is intolerable. The pain of not changing outweighs the pain of changing. Here is one of those rare quotes from the series A Dance to the Music of Time. This is from book two. Not many quotable sentences in these works, but I like this paragraph. I used to imagine life divided into separate compartments consisting, for example, of such dual abstractions as pleasure and pain, love and hate, friendship and enmity. As time goes on, these supposedly different worlds draw closer so that at last a diversity between them seems to be almost imperceptible. Nearly all the inhabitants of these outwardly disconnected empires turn out to be tenaciously interrelated. Love and hate, friendship and enmity too. Just like uh, dictatorship and democracy, they're not opposites. They are both integrated 
in each other. Uh, Fred Luskin, who wrote the life-changing book, Forgive for Good, I see time and again that when hurt people reconnect with their noblest goals, they gain an immediate burst of power. Finding your positive intention reconnects you with your goals. The sad truth is your grievances separate you from your most positive goals through your excessive focus on what went wrong. The biggest drawback to telling grievance stories is they keep us connected in a powerless way with people who have hurt us. When we mull over our past wounds and hurts, we remind ourselves of a part of our life that did not work. Reconnecting with our positive intention reminds us of our goals and enables us to move forward. You can tell if you have processed something, if you can talk about it without physiological reactions such as stuttering, your voice cracking, your face flushing. If you can't talk about something without getting triggered, you haven't processed it. If you can't talk about your urges without getting triggered, you haven't recovered. If you still have triggers, you haven't processed and come to terms with you. Intensity of your triggers is inverse to your level of recovery. Triggers are a sign you need to work your program in blunter terms. Triggers are bullshit. Step work reduces our unnecessary sensitivities. It makes us more resilient. A sign of recovery is living an increasingly transparent life. Here's a paragraph from the Wall Street Journal. People feel more extroverted, more agreeable, more conscientious when they are in other places compared to when they are at home. People feel more disorganized, more chaotic when they are at home. So when you spend time in social environments, you will feel more compassionate, more open-minded, more kind compared to when you are at home. And my final rule for life, you cannot be happy without friends. You cannot be happy without friends. Friends make the journey through life so much easier. Okay, I was just uh, reading a terrific psychology uh, philosophy paper because I was, I was Googling, as we're all want to do, I was Googling epi epistemic corruption and epistemic sabotage, and I found a great uh, preprint of a 2023 philosophy paper on epistemic black holes, how self-sealing belief systems develop and evolve. So how do people believe really crazy things? Completely implausible, completely unfounded. Why do so many seemingly sane and rational people in the age of modern science believe the moon landings never happened but were staged in a Hollywood studio? Like Chuck Johnson is agnostic about that. That extraterrestrial visitors have abducted people in their sleep and conducted sexual experiments on them. That the 9-11 attacks were an inside job carried out by the Bush administration that all living creatures were created in their present form a couple of thousand years ago, right? That's uh, creation science. That the world is secretly run by a small clique of Satan-worshipping pedophiles or by a super race of extraterrestrial lizard beings. Why do people believe that the vaccines against COVID contain nanotech microchips invented by Bill Gates in a plan for mind control and world domination? Why do people believe the world is a flat disk surrounded by a wall of ice known as Antarctica. Okay, so why do people fall into these epistemic black holes? And there's a English philosopher who wrote a terrific book on, you know, avoiding BS. And he talked about a bubble of belief that while seductively easy to enter, can then be almost impossible to think your way out of again. So I think many people listen to Dennis Prager or Ben Shapiro or uh, Richard Spencer, or Nick Fuentes, right? They enter this bubble of belief, seductively easy to enter, but then almost impossible to think your way out of again. 
So epistemic black holes are essentially unfalsifiable theories. Right, so there are, of course, conspiracy theories. 9-11 was a conspiracy conducted by members of Al-Qaeda, but when we talk about conspiracy theories, we're referring to a class of unfounded and implausible theories that are held in the absence of good evidence. So the belief that the moon landing was staged in a Hollywood studio, that 9-11 was an inside job by the Bush administration, that the Sandy Hook school shooting was staged with paid actors as part of a gun control campaign, there are also broader conspiratorial worldviews that explain almost all historical events as resorting from the intentions of a small cadre of invisible actors such as the Jews, the elders of Zion, the Rothschilds, or the Illuminati. So if you postulate the existence of intelligent agents working behind the scenes to cover up the evidence for their existence, then you have reason to expect an absence of evidence for your theory and the absence of discovery of uh, counter-evidence for your theories. So the story of this global Jewish conspiracy right, benefited from this built-in self-sealing notion that, uh, of course, we must avoid talking about the Jewish question. This is avoided by all parties, all organs of public opinion, because the Jews are the true powers that be, and they prevent discussion of the Jewish question. So if the protocols of the elders of Zion had been an authentic document, if the elders of Zion, as portrayed there, really existed, we would expect them to try to cover up evidence for their secret plans, right? And so this is the self-sealing epistemic black hole that many people fall into. If the Jews really controlled all the political parties behind the scenes, we would expect those parties to remain suspiciously silent or dismissive of the Jewish question. So in the 1905 introduction to the Protocols of Zion, the reader is warned not to be fooled by the absence of witnesses to corroborate the reality of this organization and their evil plans. In fact, such an absence of evidence is exactly what we should expect. For it possible to prove this worldwide conspiracy by means of evidence, the mysteries of iniquity would be violated. To prove itself, it has to remain unmolested till the day of its incarnation. So even today, a full century after having been debunked, protocols are still regularly reprinted, disseminated, and discussed as an authentic document now predominantly in the Islamic world. And so you'll notice this self-sealing logic in many popular conspiracy theories. So the 9-11 Commission set up by the U.S. Congress published a 585-page report in 2004. It had reviewed half a million intelligence documents. It had detailed the responsibility of al-Qaeda detailed the failures of U.S. intelligence agencies in excruciating death, but conspiracy theorists were hardly impressed. The U.S. government had itself staged the attack as a false flag, created pretext for invading Iraq and Afghanistan. Then you'd expect them to fabricate a sham report full of false evidence and distortions. So uh, initially credible conspiracy hypotheses about specific historical events, such as the murder of John F. Kennedy, frequently degenerate into an epistemic black hole it ends up attributing superhuman powers and intelligence to unseen conspirators working behind the scenes. And then many Christians and Muslims say that the reason that we can't see you know, God working in the world, well, that's because God is hiding himself. Once you adopt the hypothesis that an invisible and possibly omnipotent supernatural being is covering up the evidence for his own existence, it becomes very hard to reason your way out of such a belief system. 
And then similar things are going on with Freudian psychoanalysis. It has the same self-sealing quality as popular conspiracy theories about history or about witchcraft, right? The absence of evidence and the apparent counter-evidence is always interpreted in the theory's own terms. So when Freud is unable to find traces of a pathological complex or unconscious desire to account for a patient's behavior, he is undeterred. He treated this as a token of unconscious resistance. So the unconscious is motivated to hide and to disguise its dark secrets. So we shouldn't be surprised by the lack of evidence. So apparent refutation of his theories are explained away with equal ease. So because of their self-sealing character, epistemic black holes are extremely resilient against external challenges in the form of counter-evidence or skeptical questions. But this strong resilience comes at a steep cost. The belief systems suffer from a problem of arbitrariness. The available evidence is always congruent with many different versions. There's no rational way to adjudicate between them. Now, in the aftermath of World War II, Jews abruptly disappeared from conspiracist literature, with the notable exception of Soviet Russia under Stalin. So why did Jews disappear from conspiracy theories after World War II? Uh, this had nothing to do with evidence. It had to do with the virtually universal abhorrence of Nazism. So most conspiracy theorists, even the ones who have promoted anti-Jewish conspiracies before World War II, abandoned or downplayed the Jewish element, and they settled for other suitable culprits such as the CIA or the FBI or the Illuminati. So these choices re reflected the ascent of the United States as the new global superpower. Other favorite targets became the United Nations and the Bilderberg Group, right, a transnational organization of political leaders and other elites, which has held annual conferences since 1954, and due to its notorious privacy and secrecy is an ideal target for conspiracy theorists. So this shift from Jews to other perpetrators did not reflect any change in the evidence. It was driven by changing social and political circumstances. Uh, the Carlson team believes Fox News is not negotiating in good faith. And they are counting on allies to go out there and send a message to Fox News, to turn off the dial at 8 p.m., to turn off the dial period on Fox News. The word boycott is being used. It's already happening at least at 8 and to a lesser extent throughout the prime time of Fox News. The ratings continue to be in the toilet, as we've been bringing to you. Um, I'll pull them up just the latest, because when we were on the air on Friday, we didn't have, um, we didn't have Thursday's ratings yet. They come out late in the afternoon. At 8 p.m., they got a 181 in the demo. Good God. That's more than a 50% drop from Tucker's in his last week on air, 181. I mean, honestly, I've been in the primetime at Fox. That's disgusting. It's a terrible, terrible number. There's no way of spinning it otherwise. It, of course, sets up the rest of the primetime to fail. 9 p.m. didn't get a lot more. They got 8,000 more than that. The demo, 189. And the 10 p.m., um, well, they lost to MSNBC. Okay, they lost. Um, that's not what you want, and that's really what will cause panic. Ingram got 156 in the demo. She lost in the demo and the overall as well. That's what causes a panic inside Fox News. If they lose a month to MSNBC, heads are going to roll over there. They're going to have to do something. They'll have to surrender somehow. They got to stop the bleeding. They may be talking tough right now with Tucker. Here's what they want to do. They want, they have, they, they have canceled his show, but they haven't fired him. So they still have him under their control, under their thumb. And they want Tucker to sit there on his couch and just cash his Fox checks and basically be immobilized by Fox News. Be rendered mute where he can't say anything between now and January, 2025. Some of his fans might enjoy Tucker's insights on things like the DeSantis announcement that's undoubtedly coming any day now. Um, who's going to be the actual nominee for the Republican Party? What's happening on the Dem side as Joe Biden has some 30% of his party rooting for somebody else? What happens during the presidential debates? What about the messaging at the conventions? What's going to happen when they get out there and start slinging muds via ads? You might like to see Tucker's thoughts on that. What about the war in Ukraine, which has very few dissenting voices like Tucker's out there? Is that one of the reasons he was silenced? We know the Murdochs talked to Zelensky weeks before Tucker was axed. They said that Tucker's name did not come up, but what is the reason? Or two weeks 
later now. We still don't know. He still doesn't know. His lawyers don't know. No one will tell them. He's been completely silenced. His show has been canceled. No one will tell him why. And even Fox News does not appear to be arguing that there was cause for the termination. Notwithstanding all the leaks you see in the papers, they're not arguing cause because Fox News hasn't fired him and is still paying him his salary. <laughs> if, if, that's, if they had cause to fire him, they'd, they'd cancel the show. They'd fire Tucker. They would not pay him the money. And they could keep him silent. That's, that's like all the best of the world. But they didn't do that. Even they know they didn't have cause, notwithstanding the bullshit leaks you're reading about, none of which makes Tucker look bad anyway. So they're really hoping that Tucker will either just abide by it to get his 30 million bucks or that he'll breach. And then they don't have to pay him anything and they'll take him to court to try to silence him. And that's what I think Tucker should do. Tucker should breach. He should come out. He should talk. He should start a rival news network. He should quit. He should forfeit the money. He'll make more money anyway, whether it's Rumble, Newsmax, Patrick Beck David's organization, launching his own situation, any of it. He should breach and forfeit the money and then let Fox News take him to court. And the sole issue will be whether they have the right to silence him for the entire election season. The guy who served them loyally for a decade, the guy who kept them number one in the APM time slot after losing Bill O'Reilly through the Trump era, despite enormous attacks on him by the New York Times and everyone on the left, that guy, whether the thanks for that should be F you, you're getting no money, you're fired, not for cause, and you must be silent. That's an F you to his fans. That's what that is. That's an F you to his fans. And what Tucker seems to be asking for, you read the Axios report, is for his fans to help him out right now and increase the pressure on Fox News so that they just let him out. Well, you fired him. Let him go. Such a threat. The same 40. Stop with the Tucker Carlson talk. I want to know more about epistemic sabotage and epistemic corruption. So, you want epistemic sabotage? I will give you epistemic sabotage. So, People like uh, Dennis Prager and most pundits, they engage in the production of cheap wisdom, right? A corrupt epistemics that creates the appearance of useful knowledge but has none of the substance. So these type of gurus are highly motivated to undertake epistemic sabotage to disparage authoritative and institutional sources of knowledge. That's the phrasing of decoding the gurus. So... And I argue that someone like a Dennis Prager engages in epistemic corruption. I claim that he manipulates knowledge for his personal, professional, and monetary gain. And by so doing, he pollutes public and private discourse. So Dennis Prager's March 7, 2023 column is a classic example of his habit of epistemic sabotage. Uh, the enumerate pundit normally disdains academic studies, but because he found one that he thought supported his point of view, he embraced it as a truth bomb against the left without regard to what it actually said. So to push his personal and ideological agenda, he treated truth like a used tampon. Here are some excerpts from his column. Why the left is pro-mask. So the world's most trusted evaluator of medical studies, the Cochrane Database of Systematic Reviews, has just released as close to a conclusive report on the effectiveness of masks against respiratory viruses such as COVID-19 we are likely to have for the foreseeable future. In the words of one of the authors, Dr. Tom Jefferson of Oxford University, Cochrane concluded there is just no evidence that they must make any difference full stop. Among the reasons for that assessment was Cochrane's conclusion that states and countries with mask mandates fared no better than states and countries without. Moreover, Dr. Jefferson's conclusions were not limited to cloth and surgical masks. Regarding N95 masks, Jefferson said, makes no difference, none of it. As for the early COVID-19 studies that policymakers cited to justify mandates for mask wearing, Jefferson said they were convinced by non-randomized studies, flawed observational studies. Okay, so compare that Dennis Prager column to a column three days later, March 10, 2023, by sociologist Zeynep Tufeki in the New York Times. Headline here, why the science is clear that masks work. 
So she quotes the editor-in-chief of the Cochrane Library, Carla Soares. Many commentators have claimed that a recently updated Cochrane review shows that masks don't work, which is an inaccurate and misleading interpretation. The review examined whether interventions to promote mask wearing helped to slow the spread of respiratory viruses. Given the limitations in the primary evidence, the review is not able to address the question of whether mask wearing itself reduces people's risk of contracting or spreading respiratory viruses. So if you're pro-mask or anti-mask, you can find plenty of evidence in either direction. So this wording was open to misinterpretation for which we apologize and we're going to revise the summary. The editor says that although one of the lead authors of the review even more seriously misinterpreted its findings on masks by saying in an interview that it proved there was just no evidence that they make any difference, the editor says that statement is not an accurate representation of what the review found. So the calculations the review used to reach a conclusion were dominated by pre-pandemic studies that were not informative about how well masks block the transmission of respiratory viruses. The review should be seen as a core for more data. Now, there are lab studies, many of which were done during the pandemic, that show many masks, including particularly N95 respirators, can block viral particles. So even cloth masks that fit well and use appropriate materials can help. So before vaccines were available, one study says U.S. states without mask mandates had 30% higher COVID death rates than those with mandates. The evidence is straightforward. Consistently wearing a mask, preferably a high-quality, well-fitting one, provides protection against the coronavirus. And it's no surprising that this particular scientist, Jefferson, says he has no faith in mask's ability to stop the spread of COVID. So in, in that interview, he said there is no basis to say the coronavirus is spread by airborne transmission, despite the fact that major public health agencies have long said otherwise. His long-doubted, well-accepted claims about the virus in an article he co-wrote in April 2020, Jefferson questioned whether the COVID outbreak was a pandemic at all. He said there was no point in mitigations to slow the spread of COVID. In an editorial in 2020, no. Anyway, so which of these two authors seems to you more committed to truth, Dennis Prager or Zeynep Defecki? So due to his agenda, Prager took what he wanted out of the study and then he moved on like a man dispensing with a whore. After he takes what he wants, then he just moves on. So Dennis Prager reminds me of the protagonist of the 1970 Paul Simon song, The Boxer. Still a man hears what he wants to hear and he disregards the rest. Threat? You that scared? Are you that terrified you can't replace your numbers at eight? Why? Did fine after Bill left, thanks to Tucker. You don't, you don't have somebody else you believe in who put points on the board? Hmm. You're that scared? This is what's going on. So unless Tucker's fans do a hard pass on the eight and the entire primetime and perhaps the channel, they're not going to bend the knee. Fox News will continue to torture the guy and make him sit on the sidelines. Yes, I understand it's not torture to pay him 30 million bucks, but he doesn't want the money. As you may know, Tucker's independently wealthy anyway. He wants to get out there and do the news. He was doing the news. He did nothing wrong. There's no cause for termination. He just wants to keep using his voice for you. The audience Fox News fostered a relationship with for him, right? So the, the whole thing is grossly unfair. Now, in, in the context of all this, we get a piece from Rolling Stone. And the headline there is inside the death match that helped doom Tucker Carlson at Fox. Now, their theory is that back in 2020, Tucker tried to get my old pal, Irina Briganti, the head of the Fox PR department, fired. And that this was, quote, a clear suicide mission, citing one source of Fox News, that Irina proved too powerful. They say he attempted to get her fired, um, that he attempted to force her out. He made his case to Fox News CEO Suzanne Scott, Fox Chief Legal Officer Viet Din, Murdoch family heir Lachlan Murdoch, and even personalities such as Sean Hannity. In pleading his case, Carlson argued Briganti spent too much time badgering on-air talent 
yes, and the channel's personnel, that she was generally incompetent and mean-spirited. <laughs> okay, that's understating it. And that she regularly engaged in dirty tricks against him and other hosts and contributors when her job was ostensibly to protect them. Yes, that's all true. I lived that firsthand. The only reason I'm able to tell you any of this is because I refused to sign a non-disclosure when I left Fox. Though, trust me, they tried. I said, you're offering me all this money to renew. I've chosen to do something else. Why would I sign a non-disclosure? I, I, don't, I don't need to. Why, why should I? And they got very upset and they withheld a couple months of my salary, even though they owed it to me. <laughs> yeah, that's what they did. Just to try to force me to sign it. Well, I didn't. And I too had to forfeit pay. Uh, it was absolutely absurd. These guys are bullies. They're bullies. And all the talent at Fox News that's listening right now, who are, I guarantee you, more on my side than they are on Fox's side. They're 100% with me on Irina Briganti. Trust me. You could be next. I left on the best of terms. These guys were down on one knee with a bouquet of roses begging me to stay. I left with a handshake and a wish of goodwill. And then they did this stuff to me, withholding the salary, trying to strong arm me and deciding a non-disclosure. And then bit by bit, attacking me day after day after day when I was on the air at NBC. P.S. They weren't the only ones. That's all I'm legally permitted to say. Um, that's them. So now here they are with Fox, um, with Tucker. And the piece goes on to say that uh, what might have been behind his ultimate firing was this woman, Irina. That one source with knowledge of the matter described the Carlson Berganti feud as an intra-network deathmatch. They say despite Carlson's high ratings, influence on Republican political circles and hyper-devoted fan base, he lacked the juice to oust Briganti. Her ties to other top executives were too tight for Carlson to overcome. In some cases, executives laughed off Carlson's attempt to get her fired, assuring him and others that Briganti was not going anywhere anytime soon. I don't know whether that's true. I actually don't know whether that's true, uh, whether they, they thought this was a laughing matter, because I'll tell you something else that I've never reported before. When I was deciding whether to stay or leave Fox News, the Murdochs offered to fire Irina Briganti to keep me. That happened at the apartment of Rupert Murdoch. I was there with my husband, Doug. And they understood that she had been so attacking me and the other women of Fox News who did not back Roger Ailes in the sexual harassment scandal that we might have reached a point where she had to go. If that's what it was going to take, they were prepared to fire her. And I said to them, I'm not in the business of having people fired. And I meant that. I had her neck on a chopping block and I refused to swing the axe. I meant that. You know what? It was a mistake because she went on to continue her reign of terror at Fox News. Ask any of the talent there, off the record reporters, go ask any of the talent how they feel about this woman and whether she's made their working situations more bearable, more pleasant, more palatable, more, more of a non-hostile place to work, okay? So I believe they would fire Irina Briganti, but the problem is now she's got stuff on. I don't know what she's amassed. I don't know what she's threatening. And I don't know whether she's behind all these leaks. It's just a theory. I just know she's capable of it. She's done it to me repeatedly. She's done it to others repeatedly. Why wouldn't she do it to Tucker? Look, that's what I was thinking of. It's screw you. You do not dictate where I work elsewhere. Right. You pay me to perform a service and that's it. Everything else beyond that is a matter of my individual liberty. So it really bothers me. That the amazing this if a worker was like, exists. I will take this job, yeah. but you cannot hire another worker. Exactly. Leave. Perfect. Yeah, they'd, be, perfect. they'd be like, that's what? insane. Yeah. That's not how this works. <laughs> yeah. Like, oh, okay, cool. Yeah. Then you, I'm exactly. not signing a non so either. We're not talking about the welfare of $25 million salary cable news yeah. pundits. Okay. We are talking specifically would, about why legally this is an idiotic framework to conduct yourself. Is, is there a deal yeah. to be made where Tucker agrees to not disparage Fox? and they let him out like how do you how do you see this ending i don't i don't know if he would do it uh i mean here's the thing they have so unceremoniously fired him and treated him i mean they didn't even give a chance right for amicable for anything amicable mm -hmm. two days after he's gone they're leaking his text messages right. and uh, they're leaking his text messages and leaking videos of him behind the scenes to me like they're kind of the ones who shot first i mean mm -hmm. first they fired him and then second immediately their chief pr is a woman named uh, irina briganti who used to be very powerful in the tabloid days but in the age of the internet now looks like a clown yes that's what i said irina um and <laughs> uh, what it is is that she thinks she's like this behind the scenes mastermind who determines fox it's very like roger ailes in terms of we wield power but what they don't understand is you're not the only place to go anymore nobody cares at this point whether they get to go on cable television or not i know a saturday it hit and the headline was tucker carlson ready to torch fox news 
on the floor of the state house when the legislature wanted to pass of reducing these mass events. By the way, if you would like to hear a Megyn Kelly show debate on gun control with both sides, Tucker Carlson is preparing to unleash allies to attack Fox News, unleash allies to attack Fox News in an effort to bully the network into letting him work for or start a right wing rival. Sources close to Tucker tell Axios. Brian Friedman, this is the guy who represents me as well. The high powered Hollywood lawyer Carlson retained for the contract dispute told Axios. Okay, here's an anecdote I have uh, mentioned many times on the show, but here's the full Monty, right? This is from Terrific 2015 book, The Israeli Mind, How the Israeli National Character Shapes Our World by Alun Brach. So talks about this Holocaust survivor in Israel who struggled with his memories, his post-traumatic stress disorder after years of suffering silently through his nightmares. His wife finally pleaded with him to seek help. He refused for years said nobody could ever understand him, and his wife heard about a new form of treatment developed by a Dutch physician, Jan Bastians, at the Center for War Injuries in Leiden, Holland. She begged her husband to give it a try. This is circa 1968. He gave in. He was about 60 when he arrived in Holland, what he knew was a highly controversial treatment. His therapy rested on the assumption that in becoming introverted, many Holocaust survivors created an internal concentration camp walling themselves off from the healing touch of other people. The more questionable element in his approach was his use of LSD to break down the defenses. So LSD tends to sharpen perceptions. So during his LSD-induced trances, this survivor experienced the most horrific hallucinations. Then during a break between his trances, he was able for the first time in his life to expose the number on his arm to a group of German tourists who he was taking a walk, who were taking a walk on the beach. He wrote that when one of these tourists who had strange elaborate tattoos on his chest and arms approached this guy on the beach to examine his simple and more unique tattoo, he initially panicked. But then in a subsequent trance, this Holocaust survivor saw himself in an SS uniform wearing a hat with a skull insignia. He then came to what he considered the major discovery of his treatment. Auschwitz was man-made, and in different circumstances, he could have been the Nazi murderer and the Germans his victims. So this insight triggered a horrible sense of guilt and a desperate plea to God, Oh Lord, am I the one? Am I the one who created Auschwitz? This new awareness cured him of his nightmares, but created a new problem for him. While letting go of his nightmares about the past, he now developed daytime fears about the future. The Holocaust was indeed man-made. What could man do now when he had the atomic bomb at his disposal? He then began to have tormenting visions about a nuclear holocaust. So this therapy eliminated his symptoms and delusions and replaced them with more authentic forms of suffering. You're wondering, 40, what do you have next for me? But I also benefit hugely from Sean's. And I, Sean knows that I sit in his office many times after work and just pick his brain on things. And I said to him about a month ago, I start this full-time job on air. You know, what, Give me a list of books. What should I be reading? I'll do you know, any homework, et cetera. And Sean said something to me, and it, it, just, it, it has changed the way that I prepare. It's, it's changed the way I think. He said, write down three truths that you know are unchanging. 
and flesh those out and get rock solid with those. And that's your paradigm, Dennis. I'm like you. I don't really care about the day-to-day news. When I guest host for you, sometimes you know I have to force myself to read yes. the news because I know obviously people want to hear it. I would so much rather talk about big themes. But what makes – I think the reason why you have lasted so long as a talk show host is because you have become rock solid in those enduring truths. And then – this is what Sean has pointed out to me. Whenever you know something crazy happens in the news, you plug that story in to your paradigm. Uh, that's right. That's he told better, you that? He did tell me that. He's no, smarter Sean, than I thought. Sean's remarkable. Sean, thank you. Seriously. Sean, you pick, you figured that out? That's not fully true, but that's a separate issue. Yeah. But it's look, obviously that's a great way to be a lasting talk show host, but I just think that just enriches no, you more is, as a person. That's the way you should live life. I was reading these books and I and, and I always I need to give myself credit, you know. Sean's advice was very helpful, but it wasn't exactly a revelation. I have had I have always had an eye towards, you know, the greater truths, but he pushed me to have both of my eyes towards those truths. I used to read these books and I would like take, I'm not even kidding, twenty to thirty pages of notes of the specifics, like this percent of people were shot by police this year, or in twenty nineteen this specific law was passed. Well, you don't remember any of that yeah, really. Well you even you? I know, even me. Well I can remember that was a bad example. I can remember, you know, well that by the, the way, I, the truth police. is I wish I could remember that stuff. Right. Okay. What about uh, these this shooting in Texas, an SUV killing uh, eight uh, immigrants from Venezuela. Get some commentary here from Richard Spencer in a minute. But uh, first, hello, caller. Welcome to the show. Elliot Blatt. Blessings. Uh oh. Hey, what, do you, what are Elliot Blatt's uh, rules for life? You can't hear me? Mm. Oh my God. That's, that's hello? my end. I'm I'm the one at fault. No, you sh- I'm coming through. So this is on your end. I'm coming through loud and clear, bro. So we'll we'll wait here for Elliot Blatt perhaps to give us his uh, rules for life. It's been a year since back surgery and I'm back to the weights. I'm going to be even more ferocious than you ever even imagined. Just give me a couple months. Texts. Calvin from Georgia. Okay, that's a relief. Hope to get uh, Elliot Black on the, back on the show. Meanwhile, get uh, a little bit of uh, Richard Spencer. E-grifter. You know, the Ian Michael Chong type characters who are, you know, from far off lands in Asia. Um, uh, needless to say... The, his percentage proportion of the white vote went down in 2016 from Donald where Trump. Romney was in 2012. And that's a remarkable thing because we hear over and over from the mainstream media, Donald Trump is a white nationalist candidate. Well, he's not very good at pursuing white nationalism if you judge him hey, by the numbers. Blessings, this is a fascinating fact. What's going on, bro? Blessings, blessing, Luke. Sorry. Um, I no just, worries. you know, I hate to tear everyone away from Dennis. <laughs> I just, <laughs> I had to call in. I had to call in. Great. So uh, I was hoping you could help me. Um, are you in decision. an epistemic black hole, bro? I'm trying to. I, I I'm worried that I might be uh, walking into one. So, uh, I'm hoping you can help me decide here. I've literally been like on the fence about this for a week, but uh, I, I'm debating whether or not to like become a paying member of Chuck Johnson's Substack. Oh, are you that's a pay- easy. Are you? A- that's easy. What's- There's no exclusive content. If you're a paying member, so you have full access to everything, even without paying. Well, but you can join. No, I have an ulterior motive now. Oh, so, okay. But, so, um, if you join, if you become a paying member, you can sort of join these conference calls, right? Oh, yeah. Okay. And you know, participate. Um, 
which and the only reason I would do it, you know, it's all it's very self-serving. But uh, if he is who he says he is, you know, he could be like a really good networking opportunity for me. Ah, yes. right. But yeah. but if he's not who he says he is, um, you know, it just could be a, 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 a you know a dead end, and it's just a silly waste of time. So, <laughs> so I've been consuming all of his content, and I go back and forth. You know, I, I really it's a Christian don't know. thing to do. It's a Christian thing to do to throw him a few shackles, bro. Well, it's not the shackles. I'm worried about making. Let's put it this way. I made a lot of bad decisions because I consumed a lot of bad information on the internet. Right. Um, yeah. It's so it's like the decision about you make about who to listen to and who to disregard is actually rather important. You can't enter into it casually. Yeah. Um, like, so yeah, anyway, uh, so that's why, uh, that's where I am. That's, that's, um, you know, I know your opinion. We don't need to rehash him, you know, about Chuck. He's just, uh, you know, he makes so many bold claims and you want to believe him, you know? And it's like, am I, like, do his, does his worldview, is it sort of an epistemic black hole that I'm sort of, you know, participating in just because I want life to be a lot more spicy and interesting than it actually is? Yeah, great, great question. What is my opinion on Chuck Johnson? Because he's he's a very complicated character. Well, that's yeah, that's that, that's your opinion. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I, that's my opinion. So, and so I, I guess uh, I'm trying to parse it. You know, I'm I'm reading this. You know, and like um, so anyway, that's where I'm at. I don't know how. I don't expect you to have an answer necessarily, but. Um, it's like I'm also I'm subscribed to Richard Spencer, but he's like on the cliff of me like unsubscribing because, Whoa. Uh, you know, I'm sure he's trembling in his boots and all, but uh, the content is just boring. Luke. It's just fucking boring. Excuse my language. Uh, I know how, that how you much, unsubscribed. How much you, how, yeah, I did uh, about four months ago. Uh, OK, yeah. So I'm in my second month. Right. And I keep tuning in thinking I'm going to get something interesting. And it's like this guy, Mark Brahman, going on oh, about you know, yeah, mythology and yeah. hour <laughs> upon hour. And I'm like, oh, God, it's not that interesting, bro. And it's like, it's all this just vague speculation. And it's, I don't know. So anyway, uh, so I'm basically going to jump spring, but, you know, Richard and, and Chuck sort of join forces sometimes and appear on the same podcast. And um, I, it's kind of in a weird, interesting, offbeat idea space that I do like tapping into um, now, now that you're not sort of doing Wignet streams anymore. You like tapping it, don't you, bro? You'll tap that. It's like a cognitive load, Luke. I like that. You know, <laughs> I feel like I'm getting a cognitive load, 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 load in my face. Yeah. <laughs> now, one thing it's, you uh, cannot say about Chuck Johnson is that he's boring. He is not boring. That's true. That's right. He's not boring. He's um, a very sexy, I, sexy guy. Well, yeah, no, no comment there. But uh, 
you know, he did sort of, he does sort of confess to a period of alcoholism. And when I hear that, I, I immediately, I think somebody coming out of alcoholism, they don't go immediately to sobriety. I think they go to politics as sort of a surrogate high, you know? Yes, yes. And it's like, and in, in that surrogate high, there's a sort of temptation towards grandiosity because they, they want the intensity of experience that alcohol is to bring them. They want that to be involved in politics. And I think this is sort of what drove Richard. I think Richard did harder drugs than just beyond alcohol. But there is a connection there. Um, and that's what sort of makes me put Chuck Johnson in quotation marks more than I you know, would like to. And even if that wasn't true, it's impossible to listen to him for any length of time and not have a whole series of reservations about him. Right, right, right. And he's actually hiring. You know, he has like a Silicon Valley company and he's hiring. And part of me thought, well, maybe I should just like apply and just get an interview with him and just see, see, what's, see what's up and sort of draw him out on some of this stuff. And it was but amazing. I thought that would be a bit just like, he was selecting people who'd go to work in the Trump administration. Like he was the one for a few weeks who was overseeing hiring in the Trump administration. Is that the funniest thing ever? <laughs> I didn't. Well, it reminds me when I worked at the Pentagon. Luke. I, know, <laughs> I don't know if I ever told you that. No. But and, and you were selecting. I, yeah, I was like, <laughs> well, no, I was a lowly. I worked at the salad bar at the Pentagon, which was pretty much as low on the rung as you could get. But, you know, you got to rub elbows with, with the powerful, you know, so kind of learn sort of by osmosis, you know, and, you know, you, you got all the heavyweights were there, Luke, you know, Schwarzkopf was there and Colin Powell was there, just Chuck Johnson was there. It was just like the elites, Luke. I was among them. I was rubbing elbows, but, you know. I just had to make sure that uh, the quinoa was always filled up because um, Schwarzkopf really loved his quinoa. And, you know, if the quinoa was ever to be empty and he was there, it would be hell to pay loop. How long did you do this? Oh, only a couple of years. Only a couple of years. Um, I was sort of selected because I won a contest, right? There was Pentagon put on like this uh, art art show art competition and i uh, made an art piece and it was basically just one quotation which i made by gluing macaroni to a board yeah and i just made this big quotation and with, with big letters but each letter was just glue which is a bunch of glued macaroni and it just said the weak endure what they must and then I was selected to work at the salad bar, Luke. Wow, that's such history. an inspiring story. And do you have a Substack yeah. I could subscribe to? I do, but it's expensive, Luke. It's okay. very expensive. <laughs> you yeah, don't just like, give it away for free. Like, why yeah, buy the cow if you not, get the milk for free? It's not. It's not under earner material, bro. It's yeah. like you know, it's the velvet rope scene, bro. You okay. Know what I'm Rules for life. Do you have any rules for life? I do, but I don't think they're any uh, anything special. It's not, they're not book material. You're not going to share them unless you get paid for it. 
No, I'll share them, but there's, it's just, you know, they, they basically verge, they verge on cliche, Luke. I'm, I'm kind of embarrassed to state them, you know. Hard work, Luke. Hard work. Work is, you know, life is hard work. You must do the work. That's my rule for life. Work. Okay. You know, it's, it's not nothing simple, but it's, it, it's ultimately true. So anyway, I don't know. So, um, that's all I really had to share, Luke. It's just, I, I just, I just wanted to parse that with you. That's all. Thank you. Blessings <laughs> to you. All right. Blessings. Shalom. Shalom. All right. Next time. All right. Next Bye-bye. time. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Sometimes mentions by the mainstream media, but they certainly dwell on the rhetoric and not the actual numbers. So I don't doubt that Hispanics as a ethnicity or as a people are shifting rightward. Um, that 60-40 breakdown among them, I think, is going to probably go to 50-50. I think it might go to 40-60 at some point in favor of the Republican Party. And all of this Trump-era electioneering and all the, the kind of Tucker Carlson or V-Dare stuff about how Hispanics are destroying the country, that they're going to have to dampen that pretty Seriously, Breitbart was another one that was doing this for a time. I think they're going to do a lot less of it. Uh, additionally, if you know anything about the online right, the idea of a, of a Hispanic, in fact, a, a noticeably Hispanic person being a white supremacist shouldn't really come as some great surprise. And I would say this, the Hispanic designation, it, it obviously, it came about in the Nixon administration. It means, are you using the Spanish language? You know, is, uh, there's so much variation in the Hispanic community. I, I wonder if that moniker isn't all but useless. Um, there are certainly people who would be called Hispanics who, you know, you couldn't distinguish from myself, uh, and yet they, uh, they are Hispanic, uh, and I'm not. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a curious designation. I won't dwell in, on that. But if you are involved in the online right, it won't surprise you at all to see non-white people effectively being white supremacist or being kind of like white supremacist uh, uh, e-grifter, you know, the Ian Michael Chong type characters who are, you know, from far off lands in Asia. Um, uh, needless to say, don't quite fit the bill uh, in terms of area and beauty, uh, but spend all of their day, in effect, race baiting. So none of that is actually terribly surprising. I don't want to make any firm conclusions, to reiterate, uh, in the sense that this right-wing death squad thing might have just simply been, I don't know, random, or he didn't know what it meant, or it's a silly joke, or who knows. But I don't think it is, it is absolutely not out of the question that he was motivated in the same way that the Buffalo shooter was motivated. And that is actually a fascinating phenomenon that is worth discussing. Obviously, there's the gun rights issue, the just prevalence of guns, particularly in Texas. Uh, there's the online despair and nihilism. Those are real serious things that are worth talking about. We can talk about that if you'd like. Um, but I do think it's interesting how, particularly the way in which anonymous right-wing Twitter caters in a way to the non-white, white supremacist fanatic, that you can put up an avatar of whomever, an anime character, a uh, you know, vintage photo, a, uh, a photo of some blonde. Uh... And uh, David, uh, how's it going, man? Haven't talked to you for a weeks. What's uh, what's new with you? What's going on? Um, normal. A lot of studying. A lot of research. And uh, how are you surviving the writers' strike in Hollywood? Yeah, I messaged you about that. I was kind of surprised that uh it had such a big effect that uh you know that they had to cancel all these shows even the the late nights i don't know saturday night live um bill Mueller. um you know, you'd think that a lot of these comedians or, or night talk show guys like did themselves like even like saturday night live a week uh week weekend update 
it's like they, they really can't write that themselves. They're completely dependent on writers like Stephen Colbert. Like they're not even funny. They're not even good. And, uh, you know, so it's, it was kind of surprising to me that they're not even that good and they're dependent on writers. Uh, but, but maybe it's not surprising. I should have known. And, uh, have you been doing any, uh, live streaming since I talked to you last? What have you been talking about? Yeah, I'm streaming all the time, like two, three times a week. Yeah, I'm doing week in review. I took it solo. So, uh, just me mostly reading papers about like philosophy and history of science. Um, now they got, uh, it's uh, engineering conference time. So I'm streaming some uh, engineering shows and uh, I got my new weekly program with Michael. So we got through uh, Kri- uh my third, third episode. And, uh, you know, I'm teaching him Hebrew, how to say the morning prayers. He's uh he's seems like a, a great guy has great uh, positive energy. Is that what you're picking up to? Yeah, I, say, I I know very little about him besides that he's really interested in Judaism. So yeah, pretty positive energy. You know, he seemed pretty you know thankful for me helping him out with his uh, Judaism and Hebrew. And you know, I told him unfortunately, you know, like my parents, my family, even most fellow Jews, like they don't really care about this stuff. Like I spent years and years of my life learning it, and uh, yeah, I think it was worthwhile because I learned it to practice it. Um, but uh, almost no one ever asked me about that. I introduced him to my mom, and uh, he was like, "My mom never asked me about this stuff. She just she doesn't think it's valuable." Um, you know, the Orthodox people, modern Orthodox. Uh, you know, they. You know, so I was trying to explain to him, basically, you're taught to do this how to, as a kid. So if you're Orthodox, you know how to do the prayers like by the time you're 13. And besides that, there's just a handful of Bali Chuva or converts that find it interesting. You know, most reform conservative Jews don't really find any need to, uh, you know, to learn this stuff. And, uh, you know, so it's kind of like a godsend to, uh, you know, uh, finally, you know, someone uh, come to me that was interested in Judaism. Like, God forbid, like years, my YouTube channel. And like not a single person really like, you know, has came with a legitimate interest in Judaism and, uh, you know, especially Jews. Like I get, you know, so much pushback from fellow Jews that have almost no interest in this. You know, like even people don't, they think I'm like a counter Semite. They, they question whether I'm Jewish or not. And, and it's like, they don't care about this. I, I don't know if you have, uh, you know, similar, you're just used to it or, or you didn't put so much, uh, effort into it to, uh, be surprised how, uh, you'll, little people value this uh good question um well i i guess i i primarily have an internal frame of, of reference so when i do a good show like i feel it and i sense it and i evaluate i value it even if nobody else gives me feedback on it and so it's wonderful to hear someone else value it too but i i think i primarily have an internal frame of reference to gauge the value of, of what I'm doing. So, for example, uh, much of the last few days, aside from Shabbos, I've just been working on a, a writing project and no, you know, no one externally has uh, valued it, but I, I value it and so it has, has meaning to me. Any, any thoughts on that difference between an internal versus an external frame of reference for trying to evaluate things? Yeah, I mean, definitely. Like uh, most of what I do, I only have internal validation 
although it's more powerful to have external validation and you know something like Judaism is a communal uh religion so like you know, like I get viewership a handful of people in the chat and so I like I keep on streaming um someone reached out actually locally to interview me saw me on uh this uh defense politics asia program talking about uh, the war in ukraine and uh, reached out to interview me so i'm gonna have him in my house a few weeks from now so uh you know it took a few years but you know i don't know if you want to go down the route of uh, judaism like uh because you know, like i didn't learn it necessarily to teach although i had dreams of maybe like being a rabbi I learned it more because you know, I just thought I should know the stuff I wanted to know. I wanted to be able to participate. I uh, you know, wanted to be able to connect to God. I mean, how did you learn? How did you learn the prayers? Did uh, you know someone like me sit with you and like go teach you word for word? Did you uh, you well, do like? Uh, well, I, I jumped in. I jumped in feet first, so I was going to Minion every morning and on Friday nights and Shabbos morning and Shabbos afternoon, and so just the. Uh, just and taking Hebrew classes, and I, I was taking classes with the Hebrew school with the children. Like I was just taking everything that was available to me. So I mean, did you have people coming? I mean, you were in the synagogue culture. I was mentioning it to Michael that uh, would be kind enough, you know, so to say, like, what does this word mean? Or uh, you, you know, kind of like simple questions, like almost elementary level questions. So you you were happy to humble yourself and uh you know just walk around synagogue and ask like you know people elementary hebrew grammar questions like what does this word mean no no i didn't i didn't do that i took classes so i went to school with i don't know seven-year-old eight-year-old nine-year-old kids i went to classes with adults i, w I went to every class every minion you know everything they had available i was living across the street from the synagogue so i didn't I didn't bother people, you know, I didn't ask, you know, people questions, generally speaking. I just went to all the classes that were available, read all the books, uh, took advantage of audio visual uh, programs, le learning the language, learning the prayers. You know, I just you're took advantage bolstering of everything. My point. You're bolstering my point that, like, if you're Orthodox, you learned this stuff as a kid, like, definitely before you're 13, like, you know, eight, nine, 10 years old. And you're the only people besides that are really like a handful of Bali Chuva that would have had no Hebrew background or Garam. And in Metro Detroit, there's not enough that there's even like a class for Bali Chuva and Garam. Maybe in New York City, even in New York City in Israel, uh, there's not even really enough people to put, you know, like maybe like Yeshiva or Samaic or, uh, you know, special Bali Chuva Yeshivas in Israel, they specialize in it. But you're saying like in L.A., even with the hundreds of thousands of Jews, like you had to sit with 10 year old kids because there's not even enough like Garam or Balichuva that they had an adult class on this stuff. Uh, no, I'm talking about Sacramento and Orlando, Florida. Okay. But I mean, in, in LA, is there such a thing as like an oh. adult class? So, I mean, you did what you had to do and that meant like sitting in the class with 10 year olds. Yeah. I mean, I just took every opportunity. And then when I came to LA, there was just an absolute plethora of, opportunities, classes, minyanim, uh, th there's absolutely everything that you could want. What you're saying, there are adult classes to uh, you teach just yes. the basic, how to say the prayers in Hebrew? Yes, yes. Yeah. So I've, yes. I've enjoyed doing it, like, you know, refreshing my memory. So, you know, like, you know, Michael reached out in stream, so we came up, you know, it's like, you know, let's start 
with uh, going through the prayers and uh you know so it's been refreshing to me just to someone you had a i don't call it like because a, a lot of people have a mutual love of judaism but like a mutual love of just saying the prayers and uh you know, because i think most people you know, like most jews have a love of judaism in some way but uh it's hard to define judaism and uh you know because it's like a culture or a group or a group strategy that uh it's different than you know just the prayers like i love the prayers i want to know how to say them and so you know, like that was definitely refreshing um you know different than the streaming you know like a little feedback like people watch the stream like the stream to uh turning that into networking um so i mean it's tough to say like i also found that new woman in uh like john wolf into some new circles just having conversations so you know i'm kind of constantly talking with people but it's kind of like you know like you know, god forbid i'm just going to sit and read and study things that no one really cares about and then try to make a youtube video on it you know just to hope that someone out there is uh studying or interested in the same thing or then i'm going to you know try to have like conversational stuff which is usually yeah honestly stuff that i feel kind of like degenerates me or uh isn't actually particularly that interesting to me yeah i'm trying to trying to put stuff online to then connect with people in real life it didn't work out that great for me here's here's something that happened to me and and my you know, love of davening and love of yiddishkeit it got contaminated by my personal foibles and personal failings as i made myself unwanted in parts of the jewish community and as i you know fell out with people due to my own selfishness my own lust my own lack of appropriate boundaries my own bad behavior my own narcissism and self-aggrandizement and grandiosity and unacceptable behavior as i fell out with people that then contaminated my my davening and my experience of, of synagogue so i loved synagogue you know i loved davening but then my own failings you know wrecked it for me and so i i kept showing up because i was committed but the love you know died because i alienated myself from you know the the community i i fell out with people i I ticked off people, I upset people, I horrified people, I disgusted people. And then I, because of all those failings in my personal relationships, that just destroyed for years and years and years any appreciation that I had for for davening and for the synagogue. And, and I kept kept showing up as because I was committed, but the love was destroyed by my own personal failings to relate to my fellow Jews or even my fellow human beings in, in a normal, healthy way. I don't know if you've had any experiences like that. Well, maybe somewhat, but uh, yeah, my foibles were maybe not as much. And, and uh, you know, I, I, but I mean, possibly something we've discussed in the past is you know, like as a Baltruva, a half Jew, a convert, there's really no path to leadership in the Jewish community. So, you could be useful to the Jewish community and it's often through performing menial tasks. And also in the Jewish community, there's no um, shortage of leadership. Like uh, you know, almost any synagogue has like countless like junior rabbis 
uh, and there's so many Jewish organizations that have like official spokesmen on the Jewish community. So there would never be a venue like, you know, to be a leader of the Jewish community, to speak on behalf of the Jewish community. Um, and, and I think we've discussed this uh, many times. However, uh, in our day-to-day -day activity, we constantly meet people that don't know much about the Jewish community um, and ask us questions about like, uh, you know, every day I meet people that ask me questions about Judaism and uh, I love being Jewish. I love answering them. And you know, then you come to, uh, you know, saying like, well, are you an embarrassment to the community? Are you properly representing the community? And um, the tendency for, you know, for people to you know, push you off, like, like uh, it, so to say, in the, in the community and you can say, okay, that's through my own bad behavior, sinful behavior, or if it's just through like a leadership thing that there's no path to leadership for us in the Jewish community. So what do we do about that? So we stream, we love talking about it. We talk mostly with people who aren't connected to the Jewish community. And if someone is connected to the Jewish community, um, you know, they're likely to you know, push us off as you know, not, not being representative or something being problematic. Uh, about us in hopes that you know the person will seek a more you know true representative of the Jewish community as opposed to you know someone like Mary you yeah so let me let me uh try to understand more about what you're saying so yeah we're obviously we're not uh, the greatest role models for Yiddish kite for, for Judaism, we're not the most knowledgeable Jews, uh, but for, you know, for, for some people, they, they might find us uh, interesting, uh, entertaining, or moving. They might connect with, with our, our struggles, but obviously they're, they're more learned and more accomplished people than, than us, both uh, online and in, in the, the real world. But uh, it's really hard to maintain an enthusiasm for Judaism if you're not enthused about the community and the community is not enthused about you. If the community is not enthused about you, you will pick that up very quickly. You'll not be able to run away from that realization the community is not enthused about you. And then it'll be very hard to keep enthusiasm going for Yiddishkeit if the community is not enthused about you. Any thoughts on that dynamic? Yeah, I definitely full agreement about that, although... I think I was making a different point. I mean, if you take, you know, just the first point, if you want, maybe go through these one by one, that there's no path to leadership for someone like me or you in the Jewish community. And our value in the Jewish community is largely through menial tasks. And, uh, you, know, you know, if you look at it, like, I'm sure you do a lot of things for the Jewish community, but relative to, you know, like you being a grown man and sophisticated man, that most of what you do is, menial so i don't know if you that you know that first point there's no path for leadership for us in the jewish community and okay great uh, great Let, let's just tackle that one and let's not get distracted i love it so that i i completely disagree with you there there is a path to leadership and it's entirely what you bring to the table so for example if you let's say you david uncovered a plot to blow up a synagogue in detroit you would be honored and you would you know, you would be moved towards a leadership position because of, say, your knowledge of how counter-Semites are operating. And through your knowledge of counter-Semites, 
you were able to uncover a plot to blow up a synagogue, you would you would be acclaimed and you would be elevated in the Jewish community. And on on my hand, when I have uh, released important information, such as that uh, certain rabbi has got you know extensive uh, uh, sexual misbehavior in his background, information that's not publicly known, that that elevates me in the Jewish community to the extent that I provide information that helps people, helps people you know stay safe, helps people stay aware of, of predators, uh, helps move predators out of leadership positions. Uh, when my reporting is say knocking down predatory rabbis like like ten pins, that does you know elevate me to a position of unofficial leadership in the Jewish community. Not that I'm you know ever the number one Jew in Los Angeles. There are you know six hundred thousand Jews here, but when I come through with a series of revelations about predatory rabbis that uh, knocks them out of a position to be predatory, there's there's a substantial unofficial position of leadership that then connects me to almost anyone that I want to interact with in, in Jewish life. So leaders of all sorts of you know, different parts of uh, Orthodox Judaism were reading what I was writing and communicating with me offline due to the importance of what I was revealing. Now, just as a, a bachelor, uh, you know, walking into synagogue, yeah, no, no status, 56-year-old bachelor walking into synagogue. But if I am revealing and releasing exclusive information that's only, you know, on my videos or on my website that is making a substantial difference in people's lives, you know, alerting them to, to predators, sexual, financial, or otherwise, that, that unofficially elevates me into communication with, you know, an unlimited number of powerful people. So... I disagree with your points. I do think that we could have as much leadership or power as we deserve through the merits of whatever it is that we're we're doing. If we're producing something that's of great value to people and is changing people's lives and protecting them from evil, then then people will be, you know, get in touch, will be appropriately grateful. Any thoughts? Yeah, I don't disagree with what you're saying, but I think it's a different point than making and saying that's not a path to leadership, you say, okay, you you could be or, or we could be well respected, well liked, and even a hero in the community. You know, say like, oh, you could do something that would even make you a hero in the Orthodox community, but it's not leadership. And even informal leadership, I'm not sure I'd even call it that. And then you focus mostly on your examples that would be something of protecting the community from negative things as opposed to traditional, you know, like uh, leadership, like in terms of uh, uh, your rabbi, uh, head of an organization, spokesman for the community, um, you know, meeting, uh, representing the community for something positive. So even the examples that you gave are on the negative end and, uh, it's not really leadership, although like, yeah, I could go on and on in agreement with what you're saying. And, uh, you know, even more so that you could be considered a hero and well-liked uh, within the Orthodox community as a, you know, convert or Baltruva. Although I don't think anything that you said negated what I said that there's no path to leadership. Yeah, I, I completely disagree because leadership is not just official. All right. Just like, here's a good analogy. 2000 years ago, the priests in the gorgeous robes you know, conducting animal sacrifice in the Holy Temple in Jerusalem, 
uh, to non-Jews, these would be the leaders of the Jewish community. But the real leaders of the Jewish community 2,000 years ago didn't wear gorgeous clothing, and they were not publicly officiating anything. They were carrying water. They were making shoes. They were doing the most menial of tasks, but because they had special knowledge, all right, knowledge of the Torah and the oral traditions of the Torah, all right, they were increasingly looked to by the people. So at various times in my experience in Los Angeles Judaism, you know, hundreds of Orthodox Jews you know, looked to me for valuable information about uh, what was really going on in the community. So when I expose a charlatan, when I expose uh, people who have you know, the fancy titles and the official positions of power, okay, so there are 10 Bate Din Jewish law courts in Los Angeles, and at least five of them have predatory rabbis operating with regard to converts. So I don't have the official titles, but I can walk into a room, and if the information that I am transmitting is important enough, I am far more important to many of the people in that room than the fancy rabbis with the fancy titles who are sitting at the dais and are pining about Torah. If, if I've got important information that would save people from great distress and great harm from eating non-kosher food because there's, a say, a kosher certification agency and, you know, purportedly kosher uh, restaurants operating in the community that are, in fact, you know, dealing in treif, right? If I can save, you know, hundreds of ordinary Jews from eating treif, uh, they pay me more attention with regard to that if I've got better information than the most official the most blessed, you know, the most august-looking rabbis, you know, seated at, at the bema. So it entirely depends on the quality of what we're bringing to the table. Uh, power is not necessarily wearing a uniform, and power is not necessarily standing at the front of the room where everyone is ostensibly looking at you. You can have much more power standing in the back of the room saying absolutely nothing, but people realize that they're much more likely to get the real MS, the real truth from you than the official sources. So frequently the pen or the video or the tweet or the blog post is far more important than what the people with the, the gorgeous $5,000 suits and the you know, august titles and you know, heads of this and that organization, right? If I've got the truth and the people with the ostensible power you know, are not willing to dispense the truth or aren't willing to, you know, face the truth, then the pen is frequently more powerful than uh, being a, a leader of a, a Jewish organization. Pass. Yeah, I mean, definitely, uh, I want to get a circle with the semantics. I mean, certainly the mission in Perkeovos, the three crowns of Torah, of uh, Kahunas and Malthus and uh, Torah, and uh, Torah's opened everybody, and then it says that, you know, the Kester Shem Tov, the crown of a good reputation, outweighs all of them. And, uh, yeah, I definitely uh, agree with you 100% in that. Um, however, you seem to be, you know, like giving a sermon, like a Hasidic sermon with, uh, well, you're largely accepting my point. That there's no, no path, not at all. There, there's, there's no, no sermon there. leadership. You're just saying like, well, there's other forms oh, of leadership. Oh, forms, forms don't matter. Be just as important. Forms don't matter. Well, well you're saying, but, but there's, there is actually no path to formal leadership. For, forms don't matter. Yeah, yeah. Um, the, the pen is, you know, frequently more important th than the sword. And so, yeah, there are paths to 
to uh, formal leadership. If I it, or you were sufficiently producing information and insight that was transforming thousands of lives, we could very easily start our own synagogue and we could you know, assume the forms. We could start our own nonprofits. If I was tr consistently transmitting valuable information very easily, or you were, very easily a billionaire said, hey, I want to fund a nonprofit. I want to fund a synagogue. You can be the president of the synagogue, the president of the nonprofit. You can decide you know, what goes on in this organization or what goes on in this synagogue. So the, the reason that we don't have you know, more leadership in the Jewish community is entirely because we haven't you know, transmitted enough you know, value. But it is you know, in, in our realm of possibilities to transmit enough value that we could have you know, all the formal leadership that you want. We could theoretically you know, operate a $100 million Jewish nonprofit you know, with a string of synagogues across the world. Yeah, I mean, you say theoretically that it's, uh, but uh, I mean, just thinking like Metro Detroit, I've been to almost all of the synagogues, and I'm not even sure I could think of a single synagogue that has, you know, like a, a lay person, like I would say definitely over 90% of the synagogues, the rabbis are sons of rabbis, and like, you know, in New York City, there were a handful like, uh, like Bali Chuva, if you, you know, if you're talking like, okay, money, as a Trump, like if you had a hundred million dollars, um, but uh, I mean, say that okay, it's not like uh, you know, like an iron shut door that that, that uh, but uh, you know, generally, I mean, so you seem to just be disregarding my point. Like, if you're giving, if you're giving, no, like I think a you're wrong. About I, I, in, I about engage with your point, and I think you're 100% wrong. Or you think, like, no, that that uh, you, you, there's uh, you're just as much. I mean, and I give a you know clear explanation of why that's the case because you know because you know I opened up saying that uh, there's no uh, shortage of up and coming Jewish leaders that have uh, you know trained in institutes. Uh, you know, most uh, rabbis and Jewish communal leaders have a bunch of kids that are are just waiting to uh, you know fill leadership positions in the Jewish community, and it makes it near impossible for formal relation, uh, formal leadership, although, you know, granting all your points about informal leadership or reputation in the community, but I say like the average rabbi in your community, the average community leader in your community has a bunch of kids that are just waiting to take leadership uh, positions. And uh, there's uh, not much room for, for uh, you know, outsiders to move into, in, into that, even if you become a hero in the community. So I, mean, I could think of people that were heroes in the community and you know we could lead into the second point I was making about. Wait, wait, uh, no, I don't want to get to the second point yet. Let me just uh, push back on you there. So sometimes I've been at a Shabbat table, and and the the rabbi, say the head of the synagogue, the head of the table, will you know pronounce what people should do, and then at that table or afterwards, people will ask me for my input, and sometimes people will follow what I say rather than the rabbi. So if we have valuable enough information, valuable enough insight, valuable enough knowledge that is more useful to people, that helps them to lead a holier, uh, more ethical, more prosperous life, then people will turn to us rather than to the rabbi with the fancy title. So again, it comes down largely to merit. The reason that we have not succeeded more towards uh, leadership 
is due to our own lack of merit to the extent that we produce merit we will then you know ascend in meeting people's needs and therefore have more and more of a leadership role pass yeah i I think i'm agreeing what you're saying but i think you're playing word games and even the examples that you're giving are bolstering my point that you say okay the rabbi in the formal position of leadership says something and then people turn to you in an informal point uh, you know to ask you for your your opinion because you might be respected among your peers but there's still a rabbi that has the formal position that uh, you know first was the the official uh position and uh you know, my experience in Judaism is is uh you know it's always been that way even you know when i first thought like you know like if i opened up a synagogue or had money i would probably like you know, have to bring in uh like you you know someone from like a lineage like you know like a kid of a rabbi or a cousin of of a extended family and uh you know, most jewish organizations uh you know, like kind of if you like a mafioso type thing you have to like employ or hook up uh you know, extended family membership but but we don't we don't have to keep on getting down this point but i think even the examples that you're giving are bolstering my point you just seem to be singing the praises of informal uh leadership or uh you're having a good reputation in the community okay and i just want to add to my points many of the most important innovations in orthodox jewish life in the united states over the past 50 years have been primarily lay-led and not rabbinic-led so the fight against uh, sexual predators in the orthodox jewish community is primarily being led by the laity not by rabbis uh, the fight for more ethical treatment of animals that get uh, slaughtered for then kosher food has been primarily lay-led, not by by rabbis. And so too, if uh, if a rabbi makes a pronouncement from a synagogue bima, but uh, more important people or more people follow instead what some blogger says or someone with no credentials, then that would be an example how how unofficial sources of power are frequently more important than uh official sources of power but what was if feel free to comment or go on to what was your second point do you remember well th- that the value to the community is largely per- performing menial tasks and you know think you know, personally uh you know, even now if i was going to do something for the community um it would probably be menial tasks i'm saying there's no value to performing menial tasks but you know like in a synagogue uh you know someone has to clean up and, and set up the food and uh you know certainly in new york where i progressed from uh you know cleaning up the synagogue to uh, you know driving to uh construction type things to where eventually i was doing you know more hush of important things like uh teaching people how to use you know i was with you know, we, we've discussed many times you know teaching people how to use computers and even eventually something that may have trumped uh the rabbis or the elites because very few rabbis knew how to do like teaching people how to use stock trading software or building permits or maybe you know navigate the, the government or legal system that in some ways may have even uh, you know trump the rabbis but uh, you're saying that uh, and even from the, you know what you said you know what 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 you've shared about yourself that most of what you do for the community um I don't know if if you consider it too a pejorative to say menial and even you know the stuff that maybe you're a hero for is 
I mean, God forbid, you know, like outing, uh, outing, uh, you know, perverts or, or something like, you know, like, like something that, uh, it's not menial, but it's somewhat on, on like the negative side. Like, I mean, cause like, okay, like you're a hero cause you helped out, out like a child molester or something. It's important. You could be a hero in the community, but like, I, I might still put that in like a, a menial type thing. I don't know, uh, if, if you agree with that, like most of what you do for the Jewish community is on a menial side. Yeah, I'm not sure I agree with it, but I'm not going to disagree with it either. I mean, there's you know, things that I've contributed to the community just from things that I've written on my blog or information that I've transmitted through social media or entertainment that I've provided in, in a video or open people up to you know new, new sources of knowledge that they weren't previously aware of. So I don't consider any of that menial. At the same time, I'm happy to pitch in with, with menial, just as uh, uh, every community, all right? You need people to do menial tasks. So l let, me, let me think of another way of phrasing it. So let's say that I had it, and I do not have this gift, but if I had the gift of fundraising, right, <laughs> the Jewish community would not want to see me wasting my talents doing menial tasks. And if you had the gift of fundraising, no Jewish community would want to, you know, keep you from that. So depending on, you know, what we have to offer, uh, the, the Jewish community is incredibly pragmatic. So if we were doctors and we could save people's lives, you know, the Jewish community would want us to do that. If we were tremendous fundraisers, the Jewish community would want us to focus on that. If uh, we had you know, search engine optimization skills that were unique and valuable, then the Jewish community would want us to do that. If we were wired into the political scene or the economic scene or the, the banking scene or the entertainment industry, the Jewish community would want us to, to do that. So I, I don't like to exaggerate my role in the Jewish community. So I'm really only going to talk overwhelmingly about, you know, menial things. That's all I'll talk about publicly. But there are other ways that are not menial that I've been able to contribute to the Jewish community, but I'm not going to stand here and talk about, you know, heroic things that I've done that, that aren't menial. I just don't, uh, don't find that appropriate. So really the only things that I'd feel generally speaking, you know, free to share would be the menial side, but, uh, depending on how valuable we can be to the community, the Jewish community is incredibly pragmatic. Any thoughts? Oh yeah. I mean, definitely. Um, and, and maybe if we pivot back, cause you know, I was mentioning, okay, like, you know, like Michael being like a godsend, cause you're like, okay, relatively, I consider myself pretty knowledgeable. I went to Orthodox schools. I finished all of Talmud. Um, you know, I spent three years in, uh, yeshiva in Jerusalem and you know, many years serving rabbis and, uh, you know, um, although I'm like, I'm not a rabbi in that sense. But uh, compared to the larger Jewish community, like even someone like you, who never formally studied in yeshiva, uh, like you did, you know, finish Talmud, you uh, you probably know significantly more than the vast majority of just Jews. Uh, but I would say, however, that knowledge of yours is not necessarily valuable to most Jews. And then, you know, back to the leadership where most Jews have well-defined leadership. So even the Federation, 
Jewish organizations, uh, you know, not just like the ADL or ZOA, AJC, uh, your Jewish Community Relations Council, uh, Reform synagogues, uh, conservative synagogues, even if in many ways you might be more knowledgeable about Judaism, they have extremely well-defined Judaism. So that, that was you know, my point to say, every day I speak to people that hardly know any Jews, are interested in Judaism, and ask me questions about it. Although you know, it comes a distance to say, well, what is my standing in the Jewish community? And uh, you know, and and I'm not sure if you're you know, like maybe earlier uh, in your your younger years, or if that's still your case, where every day, all the time, you know, are streaming. Uh, you know, when you have bigger numbers, where you're constantly meeting people that uh, you know you're there into Judaism, and they have a bunch of questions to ask you. And uh, you know, first, uh, I mean, maybe we should go first to the point about the larger secular, reform, conservative Jewish community that uh, you may know more in terms of being an Orthodox Jew, but they may not value that information and have clearly defined um, community leaders. Right. So there are people who've converted to Judaism for whom I've played a, a pivotal role. Like I've, you know, helped them along the way they've found you know the advice that i dispensed uh, useful it helped them to be more effective at, at navigating uh, uh, you know particularly challenging process so you know for those people I, I played a role for other people say coming back to judaism from a more secular life i've sometimes played uh, you know a key role in them you know just dis discovering the, the the beauties of uh, traditional judaism uh but i had uh something else that kind of struck me when I just first started talking to you tonight. I've never seen you so happy. You seem really light and happy. Is that a fair analysis of what's going on with you? I'm not sure. Maybe I, I just did physical labor. Maybe, you know, like uh, I was doing some gardening and I did, uh, I mowed my lawn today. So, uh, you know, I'm not sure I particularly feel any different than I usually feel, but, uh, you know, if it's coming, maybe, from uh, you know, you just got me coming in from my garden, and uh, you know, from I didn't plant my garden yet, but I'm uh, tipping my soil. But uh, I guess you know, thanks, appreciate that. Uh, no, there's a lightness to you today that I don't normally see, and I think it's because you found a new friend in Michael, uh, for whom you can really help him out. You can genuinely make a contribution, and it seems to have really you know improved the quality of your life. Oh yeah, that's I even said he's like a godsend. Yeah. And you know, so I mentioned like, okay, like I spent years at the downtown synagogue trying to build up a minion, and then they turned in a different direction. And that's what I was saying, like they have no dearth of leadership. You know, saying like relatively like half the people that go there are like on the payroll of some Jewish organization. And uh they don't particularly value my knowledge base. And uh, yeah, so it, it kind of be like a drag, and uh, you know, being being uh, you because know, I still love Judaism, and uh, you're trying to fit in the Orthodox community that's very difficult. And like I was saying, like okay, I'm going to go to the Orthodox community, and you know, I'm going to be doing kind of like menial stuff, or uh, you know, consider like not not really valued within my skill set, um, or you know, to the more larger Jewish community where people don't really care about, uh, 
you know, the learning Torah or, or the prayers. So, uh, yeah, Michael was like a lifeline from, you know, from God to, uh, you know, that someone would actually be interested in this stuff. And then I guess enough on the outside that, uh, you know, cause he kind of just wants to learn this stuff. So I'm happy to share it. So, you know, we haven't even discussed like the, the Jewish community at large and he's coming from pretty far out into the suburbs that he's, uh, you know, he's not, uh, you're really connected to any of, uh, you know, so to say the formal Jewish community. So, so there's no politics. So we just, you know, discuss, uh, you know, love of Judaism, the prayer, Torah, uh, politics free. And, uh, you know, God forbid, I, I think in my friend, uh, Dishan, who I've streamed with a few times from Detroit and he, he's learned a little bit of Torah, but I think like all I really talk with him about is like Jewish politics and like, you know, communal affairs. And, uh, there's a handful of like, you know, even, uh, you know, I was trying to tell Michael, like, uh, you know, like you go to synagogue, most synagogues, um, you know, people, even, you know, people go to meet their friends and talk business and politics, you know, they might say the prayers, but like, you know, generally even the Orthodox synagogues, um, you know, there might be a few handful of like, you know, serious ones. Um, but, uh, you know, they don't really take the prayers that seriously. And, you know, I stand out as a Balchuva and he would stand out as a convert by taking the prayers seriously. And then, you know, think about it, like, I mean, just culturally, you know, like most Orthodox Jews, it's a, a social thing that, you know, they go to synagogue to meet their friends and talk business and politics. Okay, I think we've got uh, a lot of stuff here that we can talk about in, in future streams. So I really like the direction of uh, tonight's stream, but I'm getting hungry. Any final words for tonight, David? Yeah, God bless. Uh, tonight's log Beomer, Rabbi Shim Bar Yichoy. Uh, Rabbi Shim Bar Yichoy's special merit was to uh, see the good in every person. You know, he could uh, even, so to say, free people from hell, the worst sinners. And... Uh, yeah, I love Judaism, but but uh, you know the mire to the politics, and uh, I don't mean like you know trying to put myself out there as a leader, but uh, you're just in the streaming, that that it's like tough work, and you 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 know bump into harsh personalities, and uh, you're just uh, you're probably why I gravitate towards converts, to you're just people who share some sort of mutual love, of your know, Judaism, like you know like uh, like you know, like oh this thing I was reading. And so, yeah, always appreciate the conversations. God bless and happy log bomber. Yes, take care, everyone. Bye bye.